Hi everyone, this is Robert. Welcome to The Well-Told Tale. Every week we bring you the finest science fiction and fantasy stories ever written. Today we reach the finale of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Will our heroes finally escape the Nautilus, and will they finally discover the identity of the mysterious Captain Nemo? It's time to pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy the finale of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Chapter 12. Cachalots and Whales During the nights of the 13th and 14th of March, the Nautilus returned to its southerly course. I fancied that, when on a level with Cape Horn, he would turn the helm westward in order to beat the Pacific Seas, and so complete the tour of the world. He did nothing of the kind, but continued on his way to the southern regions. Where was he going to? To the Pole? It was madness. I began to think that the captain's temerity justified Ned Land's fears. For some time past, the Canadian had not spoken to me of his projects of flight. He was less communicative, almost silent. I could see that this lengthened imprisonment was weighing on him, and I felt that rage was burning within him. When he met the captain, his eyes lit up with suppressed anger, and I feared that his natural violence would lead him into some extreme. That day, the 14th of March, Conseil and he came to me in my room. I inquired the cause of their visit. "'A simple question to ask you, sir,' replied the Canadian. "'Speak, Ned. How many men are there on board the Nautilus, do you think?' "'I cannot tell, my friend. I should say that its working does not require a large crew.' "'Certainly. Under existing conditions, ten men at the most ought to be enough. Well, why should there be any more?' "'Why?' I replied, looking fixedly at Ned Land, whose meaning was easy to guess. Because, I added, if my surmises are correct, and if I have well understood the captain's existence, the Nautilus is not only a vessel, it is also a place of refuge for those who, like its commander, have broken every tie upon earth. Perhaps so, said Conseil, but in any case, the Nautilus can only contain a certain number of men. Could you not, sir, estimate their maximum? How, Conseil? By calculation, given the size of the vessel, which you know, sir, and consequently the quantity of air it contains, knowing also how much each man expends at a breath, and comparing these results with the fact that the Nautilus is obliged to go to the surface every twenty-four hours. Conseil had not finished the sentence before I saw what he was driving at. "'I understand,' said I, "'but that calculation, though simple enough, can give but a very uncertain result.' "'Never mind,' said Ned Land urgently. "'Here it is, then,' said I. "'In one hour each man consumes the oxygen contained in twenty gallons of air, and in twenty-four that contained in four hundred and eighty gallons. We must therefore find out how many times four hundred and eighty gallons of air the Nautilus contains. Just so, said Conseil. Or, I continued, the size of the Nautilus being fifteen hundred tons, and one ton holding two hundred gallons, it contains three hundred thousand gallons of air, which, divided by four hundred and eighty, gives a quotient of six hundred and twenty-five, which means to say, strictly speaking, that the air contained in the Nautilus would suffice for six hundred and twenty-five men for twenty-four hours. Six hundred and twenty-five, repeated Ned. But remember that all of us, passengers, sailors, and officers included, would not form a tenth part of that number. Still too many for three men, 
murmured Conseil. The Canadian shook his head, passed his hand across his forehead, and left the room without answering. "'Will you allow me to make one observation, sir?' said Conseil. "'Poor Ned is longing for everything that he cannot have. His past life is always present to him. Everything that we are forbidden he regrets. His head is full of old recollections. And we must understand him. What has he to do here? Nothing.' He is not learned like you, sir, and has not the same taste for the beauties of the sea that we have. He would risk everything to be able to go once more into a tavern in his own country. Certainly the monotony on board must seem intolerable to the Canadian, accustomed as he was to a life of liberty and activity. Events were rare which could rouse him to any show of spirit, but that day an event did happen which recalled the bright days of the harpooner. About eleven in the morning, being on the surface of the ocean, the Nautilus fell in with a troop of whales, an encounter which did not astonish me, knowing that these creatures, hunted to death, had taken refuge in high latitudes. We were seated on the platform with a quiet sea. The month of October in those latitudes gave us some lovely autumnal days. It was the Canadian, he could not be mistaken, who signalled a whale on the eastern horizon. Looking attentively, one might see its black back rise and fall with the waves five miles from the Nautilus. Ah, exclaimed Ned Land, if I was on board a whaler, now such a meeting would give me pleasure. It is one of large size. See with what strength its blowholes throw up columns of air and steam. Confound it, why am I bound to these steel plates? What, Ned, said I, you have not forgotten your old ideas of fishing. Can a whale-fisher ever forget his old trade, sir? Can he ever tire of the emotions caused by such a chase? You have never fished in these seas, Ned? Never, sir, in the northern only, and as much in Bering as in Davis Straits. Then the southern whale is still unknown to you. It is the Greenland whale which you have hunted up to this time, and that would not risk passing through the warm waters of the equator. Whales are localised, according to their kinds, in certain seas which they never leave. And if one of these creatures went from Bering to Davis Straits, it must be simply because there is a passage from one sea to the other, either on the American or the Asiatic side. In that case, as I have never fished in these seas... I do not know the kind of whale frequenting them. I have told you, Ned. A greater reason for making their acquaintance, said Conseil. Look, look, exclaimed the Canadian. They approach. They aggravate me. They know that I cannot get at them. Ned stamped his feet. His hand trembled as he grasped an imaginary harpoon. Are these cetaceans as large as those of the northern seas? asked he. Very nearly, Ned. "'Because I have seen large whales, sir, whales measuring a hundred feet. "'I have even been told that those of Hullamock and Umgallic of the Aleutian Isles "'are sometimes a hundred and fifty feet long. "'That seems to me an exaggeration. "'These creatures are only balioopterons, uh, provided with dorsal fins, "'and, like the cachalots, are generally much smaller than the Greenland whale.' "'Ah!' exclaimed the Canadian, whose eyes had never left the ocean. They are coming nearer. They are in the same water as the Nautilus. Then, returning to the conversation, he said, You spoke of the cachalot as a small creature. I have heard of gigantic ones. They are intelligent, Cetacea. It is said of some that they cover themselves with seaweed and fucus, and then are taken for islands. People encamp upon them and settle there, light a fire. And build houses, said Conseil. Yes, Joker, said Ned Land. 
and one fine day the creature plunges, carrying with it all the inhabitants to the bottom of the sea. Something like the travels of Sinbad the Sailor, I replied, laughing. Ah, suddenly exclaimed Ned Land. It is not one whale. There are ten. There are twenty. It is a whole troop. Am I not able to do anything? Hands and feet tied. But friend Ned, said Conseil, why do you not ask Captain Nemo's permission to chase them? Conseil had not finished his sentence when Ned Land had lowered himself through the panel to seek the captain. A few minutes afterwards, the two appeared together on the platform. Captain Nemo watched the troop of Cetacea playing on the waters about a mile from the Nautilus. They are southern whales, said he. There goes the fortune of a whole fleet of whalers. Well, sir, asked the Canadian, can I not chase them, if only to remind me of my old trade of harpooner? And to what purpose, replied Captain Nemo, only to destroy. We have nothing to do with the whale oil on board. But, sir, continued the Canadian, in the Red Sea you allowed us to follow the dugong. Then it was to procure fresh meat for my crew. Here it would be killing for killing's sake. I know that is a privilege reserved for man, but I do not approve of such murderous pastime. In destroying the southern whale, like the Greenland whale, an inoffensive creature, your traders do a culpable action, Master Land. They have already depopulated the whole of Baffin's Bay and are annihilating a class of useful animals. Leave the unfortunate creatures alone. They have plenty of natural enemies, cachalots, swordfish and sawfish, without you troubling them captain was right. The barbarous and inconsiderate greed of these fishermen will one day cause the disappearance of the last whale in the ocean. Ned Land whistled Yankee Doodle between his teeth, thrust his hands into his pockets, and turned his back upon us. But Captain Nemo watched the troop of Cetacea, and addressing me, said, I was right in saying that whales had natural enemies, though, without counting man. These will have plenty to do before long. Do you see, Monsieur Aranax, about eight miles to leeward, those blackish moving points? Yes, Captain, I replied. Those are cachalots, terrible animals, which I have met in troops of two or three hundred. As to those, they are cruel, mischievous creatures. They would be right in exterminating them. The Canadian turned quickly at the last words. Well, Captain, said he, it is still time, in the interest of the whales. It is useless to expose oneself, Professor. The Nautilus will disperse them. It is armed with a steel spur as good as Master Land's harpoon, I imagine. The Canadian did not put himself out enough to shrug his shoulders. Attack them with the blows of a spur? Who had ever heard of such a thing? Wait, Monsieur Aronnax, said Captain Nemo. We will show you something you have never yet seen. We have no pity for these ferocious creatures. They are nothing but mouth and teeth. Mouth and teeth. No one could better describe the cachalot, which is sometimes more than 75 feet long. Its enormous head occupies one third of its entire body. Better armed than the whale, whose upper jaw is furnished only with whalebone, it is supplied with 25 large tusks, about eight inches long, cylindrical and conical at the top, each weighing two pounds. It is in the upper part of this enormous head, in great cavities divided by cartilages, that is to be found from six to eight hundred pounds of that precious oil called spermaceti. The cachalot is a disagreeable creature, more tadpole than fish, 
According to Friedel's description, it is badly formed, the whole of its left side being, if we may say it, a failure, and being only able to see with its right eye. But the formidable troop was nearing us. They had seen the whales and were preparing to attack them. One could judge beforehand that the cachalots would be victorious, not only because they were better built for attack than their inoffensive adversaries, but also because they could remain longer underwater without coming to the surface. There was only just time to go to the help of the whales. The Nautilus went underwater. Conseil, Ned Land and I took our places before the window in the saloon, and Captain Nemo joined the pilot in his cage to work his apparatus as an engine of destruction. Soon I felt the beatings of the screw quicken and our speed increased. The battle between the cachalots and the whales had already begun when the Nautilus arrived. They did not, at first, show any fear at the sight of this new monster joining in the conflict, but they soon had to guard against its blows. What a battle! The Nautilus was nothing but a formidable harpoon brandished by the hand of its captain. It hurled itself against the fleshy mass, passing through from one part to the other, leaving behind it two quivering halves of the animal. It could not feel the formidable blows from their tails upon its sides, nor the shock which it produced itself much more. One cachalot killed... It ran at the next, tacked on the spot that it might not miss its prey, going forwards and backwards, answering to its helm, plunging when the cetacean dived into the deep waters, coming up with it when it returned to the surface, striking it front or sideways, cutting or tearing in all directions and at any pace, piercing it with its terrible spur. What carnage! What a noise on the surface of the waves, what sharp hissing, and what snorting peculiar to these enraged animals. In the midst of these waters, generally so peaceful, their tails had made perfect billows. For one hour this wholesale massacre continued, from which the cachalots could not escape. Several times ten or twelve united to try to crush the Nautilus by their weight. From the window we could see their enormous mouths studded with tusks and their formidable eyes. Ned Land could not contain himself. He threatened and swore at them. We could feel them clinging to our vessel like dogs worrying a wild boar in a copse. But the Nautilus, working its screw, carried them here and there or to the upper levels of the ocean without caring for their enormous weight nor the powerful strain on the vessel. At length the mass of cachalots broke up. The waves became quiet, and I felt that we were rising to the surface. The panel opened and we hurried on to the platform. The sea was covered with mutilated bodies. A formidable explosion could not have divided and torn this fleshy mass with more violence. We were floating amid gigantic bodies, bluish on the back and white underneath, covered with enormous protuberances. Some terrified cachalots were flying towards the horizon. The waves were dyed red for several miles, and the Nautilus floated in a sea of blood. Captain Nemo joined us. Well, Master Land, said he. Well, sir, replied the Canadian, whose enthusiasm had somewhat calmed. It is a terrible spectacle, certainly, but I am not a butcher. I am a hunter, and I call this a butchery. It is a massacre of mischievous creatures, replied the captain, and the Nautilus is not a butcher's knife. I like my harpoon better, said the Canadian. Every one to his own, answered the captain, looking fixedly at Ned Land. 
I feared he would commit some act of violence which would end in sad consequences, but his anger was turned by the sight of a whale which the Nautilus had just come up with. The creature had not quite escaped from the cachalot's teeth. I recognised the southern whale by its flat head, which is entirely black. Anatomically, it is distinguished from the white whale and the North Cape whale by the seven cervical vertebrae, and it has two more ribs than its congeners. The unfortunate cetacean was lying on its side, riddled with holes from the bites and quite dead. From its mutilated fin still hung a young whale which it could not save from the massacre. Its open mouth let the water flow in and out, murmuring like the waves breaking on the shore. Captain Nemo steered close to the corpse of the creature. Two of his men mounted its side, and I saw, not without surprise, that they were drawing from its breasts all the milk which they contained, that is to say, about two or three tons. The captain offered me a cup of the milk which was still warm. I could not help showing my repugnance to the drink, but he assured me that it was excellent and not to be distinguished from cow's milk. I tasted it and was of his opinion. It was a useful reserve to us, for in the shape of salt, butter or cheese, it would form an agreeable variety from our ordinary food. From that day... I noticed with uneasiness that Ned Land's ill-will towards Captain Nemo increased, and I resolved to watch the Canadian's gestures carefully. Chapter 13. The Iceberg The Nautilus was steadily pursuing its southerly course, following the 50th meridian with considerable speed. Did he wish to reach the pole? I did not think so, for every attempt to reach that point had hitherto failed. Again, the season was far advanced, for in the Antarctic regions the 13th of March corresponds with the 13th of September of northern regions, which begin at the equinoctial season. On the 14th of March, I saw floating ice in latitude 55 degrees, merely pale bits of debris from 20 to 25 feet long, forming banks over which the sea curled. The Nautilus remained on the surface of the water. Ned Land, who had fished in the Arctic seas, was familiar with its icebergs but Conseil and I admired them for the first time. In the atmosphere towards the southern horizon stretched a white, dazzling band. English whalers have given it the name of Ice Blink. However thick the clouds may be, it is always visible and announces the presence of an ice pack or bank. Accordingly, larger blocks soon appeared, whose brilliancy changed with the caprices of the fog. Some of these masses showed green veins, as if long, undulating lines had been traced with sulphate of copper, Others resembled enormous amethysts with the light shining through them. Some reflected the light of day upon a thousand crystal facets. Others, shaded with vivid calcareous reflections, resembled a perfect town of marble. The more we neared the south, the more these floating islands increased, both in number and importance. At 60 degrees latitude, every pass had disappeared, but seeking carefully, Captain Nemo soon found a narrow opening through which he boldly slipped, knowing, however, that it would close behind him. Thus, guided by this clever hand, the Nautilus passed through all the ice with a precision which quite charmed Conseil. Icebergs or mountains, ice fields or smooth plains, seeming to have no limits, drift ice or floating ice packs, plains broken up, called pouches when they are circular, and streams when they are made up of long strips. The temperature was very low. The thermometer exposed to the air marked two degrees, or three degrees below zero, but we were warmly clad with fur at the expense of the sea bear and seal. 
the interior of the Nautilus, warmed regularly by its electric apparatus, defied the most intense cold. Besides, it would only have been necessary to go some yards beneath the waves to find a more bearable temperature. Two months earlier, we should have had perpetual daylight in these latitudes, but already we had three or four hours of night, and by and by there would be six months of darkness in these circumpolar regions. On the 15th of March, we were in the latitude of New Shetland and South Orkney. The captain told me that formerly numerous tribes of seals inhabited them, but that English and American whalers, in their rage for destruction, massacred both old and young. Thus, where there was once life and animation, they had left silence and death. About eight o'clock on the morning of the 16th of March, the Nautilus, following the 55th meridian, cut the Antarctic polar circle. Ice surrounded us on all sides and closed the horizon, but Captain Nemo went from one opening to another, still going higher. I cannot express my astonishment at the beauties of these new regions. The ice took most surprising forms. Here the grouping formed an oriental town with innumerable mosques and minarets. There a fallen city thrown to the earth, as it were, by some convulsion of nature. The whole aspect was constantly changed by the oblique rays of the sun, or lost in the greyish fog amidst hurricanes of snow. Detonations and falls were heard on all sides, great overthrows of icebergs which altered the whole landscape like a diorama. Often seeing no exit, I thought we were definitely prisoners, but instinct guiding him at the slightest indication, Captain Nemo would discover a new pass. He was never mistaken when he saw the thin threads of bluish water trickling along the ice fields, and I had no doubt that he had already ventured into the midst of these Antarctic seas before. On the 16th of March, however, the ice fields absolutely blocked our road. It was not the iceberg itself as yet, but vast fields cemented by the cold. But this obstacle could not stop Captain Nemo. He hurled himself against it with frightful violence. The Nautilus entered the brittle mass like a wedge and split it with frightful crackings. It was the battering ram of the ancients hurled by infinite strength. The ice, thrown high in the air, fell like hail around us. By its own power of impulsion, our apparatus made a canal for itself, sometimes carried away by its own impetus. It lodged on the ice field, crushing it with its weight, and sometimes buried beneath it, dividing it by a simple pitching movement, producing large rents in it. Violent gales assailed us at this time, accompanied by thick fogs through which, from one end of the platform to the other, we could see nothing. The wind blew sharply from all parts of the compass, and the snow lay in such hard heaps that we had to break it with blows of a pickaxe. The temperature was always at five degrees below zero. Every outward part of the Nautilus was covered with ice. A rigged vessel would have been entangled in the blocked-up gorges. A vessel without sails, with electricity for its motive power, and wanting no coal, could alone brave such high latitudes. At length, on the 18th of March, after many useless assaults, the Nautilus was positively blocked. It was no longer either streams, packs or ice fields, but an interminable and immovable barrier formed by mountains soldered together. An iceberg, said the Canadian to me. I knew that to Ned Land, as well as to all other navigators who had preceded us, this was an inevitable obstacle. The sun appearing for an instant at noon, Captain Nemo took an observation as near as possible, which gave our situation at 51 degrees 30 longitude and 67 degrees 39 of south latitude. We had advanced one degree more in this Antarctic region. 
of the liquid surface of the sea, there was no longer a glimpse. Under the spur of the Nautilus lay stretched a vast plain, entangled with confused blocks, here and there sharp points and slender needles rising to a height of two hundred feet. Further on, a steep shore, hewn as it were with an axe and clothed with greyish tints, huge mirrors reflecting a few rays of sunshine, half drowned in the fog, and over this desolate face of nature a stern silence reigned scarcely broken by the flapping of the wings of petrels and puffins. Everything was frozen, even the noise. The Nautilus was then obliged to stop in its adventurous course amidst these fields of ice. In spite of our efforts, in spite of the powerful means employed to break up the ice, the Nautilus remained immovable. Generally, when we can proceed no further... We have return still upon us, but here return was as impossible as advance, for every pass had closed behind us, and for the few moments when we were stationary, we were likely to be entirely blocked, which did indeed happen about two o'clock in the afternoon, the fresh ice forming around its sides with astonishing rapidity. I was obliged to admit that Captain Nemo was more than imprudent. I was on the platform at that moment. The captain had been observing our situation for some time past, when he said to me, well, sir, what do you think of this? I think that we are caught, Captain. So, Monsieur Aronnax, you really think that the Nautilus cannot disengage itself? With difficulty, Captain, for the season is already too far advanced for you to reckon on the breaking of the ice. Ah, sir, said Captain Nemo in an ironical tone, you will always be the same. You see nothing but difficulties and obstacles. I affirm that not only can the Nautilus disengage itself, but also then it can go further still. Further to the south? I asked, looking at the captain. Yes, sir, it shall go to the pole. To the pole? I exclaimed, unable to repress a gesture of incredulity. Yes, replied the captain coldly, to the Antarctic pole, to that unknown point from whence springs every meridian of the globe. You know whether I can do as I please with the Nautilus. Yes, I knew that. I knew that this man was bold even to rashness, but to conquer those obstacles which bristled round the South Pole, rendering it more inaccessible than the North, which had not yet been reached by the boldest navigators, was it not a mad enterprise, one which only a maniac would have conceived? It then came into my head to ask Captain Nemo if he had ever discovered that pole, which had never yet been trod by a human creature. Oh, no, sir he replied, but we will discover it together. Where others have failed, I will not fail. I have never yet led my Nautilus so far into the southern seas, but, I repeat, it shall go further yet. I can well believe you, Captain, said I, in a slightly ironical tone. I believe you. Let us go ahead. There are no obstacles for us. Let us smash this iceberg. Let us blow it up. And if it resists, let us give the Nautilus wings to fly over it. Over it, sir, said Captain Nemo quietly. No, not over it, but under it. Under it, I exclaimed, a sudden idea of the captain's projects flashing upon my mind. I understood the wonderful qualities of the Nautilus were going to serve us in this superhuman enterprise. I see we are beginning to understand one another, sir, said the captain, half smiling. You begin to see the possibility, I should say the success of this attempt, that which is impossible for an ordinary vessel is easy to the Nautilus. If a continent lies before the pole, it must stop before the continent. But if, on the contrary, the pole is washed by open sea, 
it will go even to the pole. Certainly, said I, carried away by the captain's reasoning, if the surface of the sea is solidified by the ice, the lower depths are free by the providential law which has placed the maximum of density of the waters of the ocean one degree higher than freezing point. And if I'm not mistaken, the portion of this iceberg which is above the water is as one to four to that which is below. Very nearly, sir. For one foot of iceberg above the sea, there are three below it. If these ice mountains are not more than 300 feet above the surface, they are not more than 900 beneath. And what are 900 feet to the Nautilus? Nothing, sir. It could even seek at greater depths that uniform temperature of seawater, and there brave with impunity the 30 or 40 degrees of surface cold. Just so, sir, just so, I replied, getting animated. The only difficulty, continued Captain Nemo, is that of remaining several days without renewing our provision of air. Is that all? The Nautilus has vast reservoirs. We can fill them, and they will supply us with all the oxygen we want. Well thought of, Monsieur Aronnax, replied the captain, smiling. But not wishing you to accuse me of rashness, I will first give you all my objections. Have you any more to make? Only one. It is possible, if the sea exists at the South Pole, that it may be covered, and consequently we shall be unable to come to the surface. Good sir, but do you not forget that the Nautilus is armed with a powerful spur, and could we not send it diagonally against these fields of ice which would open at the shocks? Ah, sir, you are full of ideas today. Besides, Captain, I added enthusiastically, why should we not find the sea open at the South Pole as well as at the North? The frozen poles of the earth do not coincide either in the southern or in the northern regions, and until it is proven to the contrary, we may suppose either a continent or an ocean free from ice at these two points of the globe. I think so too, Monsieur Aronnax, replied Captain Nemo. I only wish you to observe that, after having made so many objections to my project, you are now crushing me with arguments in its favour. The preparations for this audacious attempt now began. The powerful pumps of the Nautilus were working air into the reservoirs and storing it at high pressure. About four o'clock, Captain Nemo announced the closing of the panels on the platform. I threw one last look at the massive iceberg which we were about to cross. The weather was clear, the atmosphere pure enough, the cold very great being 12 degrees below zero, but the wind having gone down, this temperature was not so unbearable. About ten men mounted the sides of the Nautilus, armed with pickaxes to break the ice around the vessel, which was soon free. The operation was quickly performed, for the fresh ice was still very thin. We all went below. The usual reservoirs were filled with the newly liberated water, and the Nautilus soon descended. I had taken my place with Conseil in the saloon. Through the open window we could see the lower beds of the Southern Ocean. The thermometer went up, the needle of the compass deviated on the dial. At about 900 feet, as Captain Nemo had foreseen, we were floating beneath the undulating bottom of the iceberg. But the Nautilus went lower still. It went to the depth of 400 fathoms. The temperature of the water at the surface showed 12 degrees. Now it was only 10. We had gained two. I need not say the temperature of the Nautilus was raised by its heating apparatus to a much higher degree. Every manoeuvre was accomplished with wonderful precision. We shall pass it, if you please, sir, said Conseil. I believe we shall, I said in a tone of firm conviction. In this open sea, the Nautilus had taken its course direct to the pole, without leaving the 52nd meridian. 
from 67 degrees 30 to 90 degrees, 22 degrees and a half of latitude remained to travel, that is, about 500 leagues. The Nautilus kept up a mean speed of 26 miles an hour, the speed of an express train. If that was kept up, in 40 hours we should reach the pole. For a part of the night, the novelty of the situation kept us at the window. The sea was lit with the electric lantern, but it was deserted. Fishes did not sojourn in these imprisoned waters. They only found there a passage to take them from the Antarctic Ocean to the open polar sea. Our pace was rapid. We could feel it by the quivering of the long steel body. About two in the morning, I took some repose, and Conseil did the same. In crossing the waste, I did not meet Captain Nemo. I supposed him to be in the pilot's cage. The next morning, the 19th of March, I took my post once more at the saloon. The electric log told me that the speed of the Nautilus had been slackened. It was then going towards the surface, but prudently emptying its reservoirs very slowly. My heart beat fast. Were we going to emerge and regain the open polar atmosphere? No. A shock told me that the Nautilus had struck the bottom of the iceberg, still very thick, judging from the deadened sound. We had indeed struck, to use a sea expression, but in an inverse sense and at a thousand feet deep. This would give three thousand feet of ice above us, one thousand being above the watermark. The iceberg was then higher than at its borders, not a very reassuring fact. Several times that day the Nautilus tried again, and every time it struck the wall which lay like a ceiling above it. Sometimes it met with but 900 yards, only 200 of which rose above the surface. It was twice the height it was when the Nautilus had gone under the waves. I carefully noted the different depths, and thus obtained a submarine profile of the chain as it was developed under the water. That night, no change had taken place in our situation, still ice between four and 500 yards in depth. It was evidently diminishing, but still, what a thickness between us and the surface of the ocean. It was then eight. According to the daily custom on board the Nautilus, its air should have been renewed four hours ago, but I did not suffer much, although Captain Nemo had not yet made any demand upon his reserve of oxygen. My sleep was painful that night. Hope and fear besieged me by turns. I rose several times. The groping of the Nautilus continued. About three in the morning, I noticed that the lower surface of the iceberg was only about fifty feet deep. One hundred and fifty feet now separated us from the surface of the waters. The iceberg was by degrees becoming an ice field, the mountain a plain. My eyes never left the manometer. We were still rising diagonally to the surface, which sparkled under the electric rays. The iceberg was stretching both above and beneath into lengthening slopes. Mile after mile it was getting thinner. At length, at six in the morning of that memorable day, the 19th of March, the door of the saloon opened and Captain Nemo appeared. The sea is open, was all he said. Chapter 14. The South Pole I rushed onto the platform. Yes, the open sea, but with a few scattered pieces of ice and moving icebergs. A long stretch of sea, a world of birds in the air, and myriads of fishes under those waters, which varied from intense blue to olive green, according to the bottom. The thermometer marked three degrees above zero. It was comparatively spring, shut up as we were behind this iceberg, whose lengthened mass was dimly seen on our northern horizon. Are we at the pole? I asked the captain, with a beating heart. I do not know, he replied. At noon I will take our bearings. But will the sun show himself through this fog? said I, looking at the leaden sky. 
However little it shows, it will be enough, replied the captain. About ten miles south, a solitary island rose to a height of 104 yards. We made for it, but carefully, for the sea might be strewn with banks. One hour afterwards, we had reached it. Two hours later, we had made the round of it. It measured four or five miles in circumference. A narrow canal separated it from a considerable stretch of land, perhaps a continent, for we could not see its limits. The existence of this land seemed to give some colour to Maury's theory. The ingenious American has remarked that, between the South Pole and the 60th parallel, the sea is covered with floating ice of enormous size, which is never met with in the North Atlantic. From this fact, he has drawn the conclusion that the Antarctic Circle encloses considerable continents, as icebergs cannot form in open sea, but only on the coasts. According to these calculations, the mass of ice surrounding the Southern Pole forms a vast cap, the circumference of which must be at least 2,500 miles. But the Nautilus, for fear of running aground, had stopped about three cable lengths from a strand over which reared a superb heap of rocks. The boat was launched. The captain, two of his men bearing instruments, Conseil and myself were in it. It was ten in the morning. I had not seen Ned Land. Doubtless the Canadian did not wish to admit the presence of the South Pole. A few strokes of the oar brought us to the sand where we ran ashore. Conseil was going to jump to the land when I held him back. Sir, said I to Captain Nemo, to you belongs the honour of first setting foot on this land. Yes, sir said the captain, and if I do not hesitate to tread this south pole, it is because, up to this time, no human being has left a trace there. Saying this, he jumped lightly onto the sand. His heart beat with emotion. He climbed a rock, sloping to a little promontory, and there, with arms crossed, mute and motionless, and with an eager look, he seemed to take possession of these southern regions. After five minutes passed in this ecstasy, he turned to us. When you like, sir. I landed, followed by Conseil, leaving the two men in the boat. For a long way the soil was composed of a reddish sandy stone, something like crushed brick, streams of lava and pumice stones. One could not mistake its volcanic origin. In some parts, slight curls of smoke emitted a sulphurous smell, proving that the internal fires had lost nothing of their expansive powers. Though, having climbed a high acclivity, I could see no volcano for a radius of several miles. We know that in these southern countries James Ross found two craters, the Erebus and the Terror, in full activity on their 167th meridian, latitude 77 degrees 32. The vegetation of this desolate continent seemed to be much restricted. Some lichens lay on the black rocks, some microscopic plants, rudimentary diatomas, a kind of cells placed between two quartz shells, Long purple and scarlet weed supported on little swimming bladders, which the breaking of the waves brought to the shore. These constituted the meagre flora of this region. The shore was strewn with mollusks, little mussels and limpets. I saw myriads of northern cleos, one and a quarter inches long, of which a whale would swallow a whole world at a mouthful, and some perfect sea butterflies animating the waters on the skirts of the shore. There appeared on the high bottoms some coral shrubs of the kind which, according to James Ross, live in the Antarctic seas to the depth of more than a thousand yards. Then there were little kingfishers and starfish studding the soil, but where life abounded, most of it was in the air. 
There, thousands of birds fluttered and flew of all kinds, deafening us with their cries. Others crowded the rock, looking at us as we passed by without fear, and pressing familiarly close by our feet. There were penguins, so agile in the water, heavy and awkward as they are on the ground, they were uttering harsh cries, a large assembly, sober in gesture but extravagant in clamour. Albatrosses passed in the air, the expanse of their wings being at least four yards and a half, and justly called the vultures of the ocean. Some gigantic petrels and some damiers, a kind of small duck, the underpart of whose body is black and white. Then there were a whole series of petrels, some whitish, some brown-bordered wings, some blue, peculiar to the Antarctic seas, and so oily, as I told Conseil, that the inhabitants of the Faroe Islands had nothing to do before lighting them but to put a wick in. A little more, said Conseil, and they would be perfect lamps. After that, we cannot expect nature to have previously furnished them with wicks. About half a mile further on the soil was riddled with ruffs' nests, a sort of laying ground out of which many birds were issuing. Captain Nemo had some hundreds hunted. They uttered a cry like the braying of an ass, were about the size of a goose. Slate colour on the body, white beneath, with a yellow line around their throats. They allowed themselves to be killed with a stone, never trying to escape. But the fog did not lift, and at eleven the sun had not yet shown itself. Its absence made me uneasy. Without it, no observations were possible. How, then, could we decide whether we had reached the pole? When I rejoined Captain Nemo, I found him leaning on a piece of rock, silently watching the sky. He seemed impatient and vexed. But what was to be done? This rash and powerful man could not command the sun as he did the sea— Noon arrived, without the orb of day showing itself for an instant. We could not even tell its position behind the curtain of fog, and soon the fog turned to snow. "'Till tomorrow,' said the captain quietly, as we returned to the Nautilus amid these atmospheric disturbances. The tempest of snow continued till the next day. It was impossible to remain on the platform. From the saloon, where I was taking notes of incidents happening during this excursion to the polar continent, I could hear the cries of albatrosses sporting in the midst of this violent storm. The Nautilus did not remain motionless, but skirted the coast, advancing ten miles more to the south in the half-light left by the sun as it skirted the edge of the horizon. The next day, the 20th of March, the snow had ceased. The cold was a little greater, the thermometer showing two degrees below zero. The fog was rising, and I hoped that that day our observations might be taken. Captain Nemo not having yet appeared, the boat took Conseil and myself to land. The soil was still of the same volcanic nature, everywhere were traces of lava and basalt, but the crater which had vomited them I could not see. Here, as lower down, this continent was alive with myriads of birds, but their rule was now divided with large troops of sea mammals looking at us with their soft eyes. There were several kinds of seals, some stretched on the earth, some on flakes of ice, and many going in and out of the sea. They did not flee at our approach, never having had anything to do with man, and I reckoned that there were provisions there for hundreds of vessels. Sir, said Conseil, will you tell me the name of these creatures? They are seals and morses. It was now eight in the morning. Four hours remained to us before the sun could be observed with advantage. I directed our steps towards a vast bay cut in the steep granite shore. There, 
I can aver that earth and sky were lost to sight by the numbers of sea mammals covering them, and I involuntarily sought for old Proteus, the mythological shepherd who watched these immense flocks of Neptune. There were more seals than anything else, forming distinct groups, male and female, the father watching over his family, mother suckling her little ones, some already strong enough to go a few steps. When they wished to change their place, they took little jumps made by the contraction of their bodies and helped awkwardly enough by their imperfect fin, which, as with the Lamantin, their cousins, forms a perfect forearm. I should say that in the water, which is their element, the spine of these creatures is flexible, with smooth and close skin and webbed feet. They swim admirably. In resting on the earth, they take the most graceful attitudes. Thus the ancients, observing their soft and expressive looks, which cannot be surpassed by the most beautiful look a woman can give, their clear, voluptuous eyes, their charming positions, and the poetry of their manners, metamorphosed them, the male into a triton, and the female into a mermaid. I made Conseil notice the considerable development of the lobes of the brain in these interesting cetaceans. No mammal, except man, has such a quantity of brain matter. They are also capable of receiving a certain amount of education, are easily domesticated, and I think, with other naturalists, that if properly taught, they would be of great service as fishing dogs. The greater part of them slept on the rocks or on the sand. Amongst these seals, properly so-called, which have no external ears, in which they differ from the otter whose ears are prominent, I noticed several varieties of seals, about three yards long, with a white coat, bulldog heads, armed with teeth in both jaws, four incisors at the top and four at the bottom, and two large canine teeth in the shape of a fleur-de-lis. Amongst them glided sea elephants, a kind of seal with short, flexible trunks. The giants of this species measured twenty feet round and ten yards and a half in length, but they did not move as we approached. These creatures are not dangerous? asked Conseil. No, not unless you attack them. When they have to defend their young, their rage is terrible, and it is not uncommon for them to break the fishing boats to pieces. They are quite right, said Conseil. I do not say they are not. Two miles further on, we were stopped by the promontory which shelters the bay from the southerly winds. Beyond it, we heard loud bellowing, such as a troop of ruminants would produce. Good, said Conseil, a concert of bulls. No, a concert of morses. They are fighting. They are either fighting or playing. We now began to climb the blackish rocks amid unforeseen stumbles and over stones which made the ice slippery. More than once I rolled over at the expense of my loins. Conseil, more prudent or more steady, did not stumble and helped me up, saying, If so, you would have the kindness to take wider steps you would preserve your equilibrium better. Arriving at the upper ridge of the promontory, I saw a vast white plain covered with morses. They were playing amongst themselves, and what we heard were bellowings of pleasure, not of anger. As I passed these curious animals, I could examine them leisurely, but they did not move. Their skins were thick and rugged, of a yellowish tint, approaching to red. Their hair was short and scant. Some of them were four yards and a quarter long. Quieter and less timid than their cousins of the north, they did not, like them, place sentinels around the outskirts of their encampment. Upon examining this city of morses, I began to think of returning. It was eleven o'clock, and if Captain Nemo found the conditions favourable for observations, I wished to be present at the operation. We followed a narrow pathway running along the summit of the steep shore. At half-past eleven, we had reached the place where we landed. 
The boat had run aground, bringing the captain. I saw him standing on a block of basalt, his instruments near him, his eyes fixed on the northern horizon, near which the sun was then describing a lengthened curve. I took my place beside him and waited without speaking. Noon arrived, and as before the sun did not appear, it was a fatality. Observations were still wanting. If not accomplished tomorrow, we must give up all idea of taking any. We were indeed exactly at the 20th of March. Tomorrow, the 21st, would be the equinox. The sun would disappear behind the horizon for six months, and with its disappearance, the long polar night would begin. Since the September equinox, it had emerged from the northern horizon, rising by lengthened spirals up to the 21st of December. At this period, the summer solstice of the northern regions, it had begun to descend, and tomorrow was to shed its last rays upon them. I communicated my fears and observations to Captain Nemo. You are right, Monsieur Aranax, said he. If tomorrow I cannot take the altitude of the sun, I shall not be able to do it for six months. But precisely because chance has led me into these seas on the 21st of March, my bearings will be easy to take, if at twelve we can see the sun. Why, Captain? Because then the orb of day described such lengthened curves that it is difficult to measure exactly its height above the horizon, and grave errors may be made with instruments. What will you do then? I shall use only my chronometer, replied Captain Nemo, if tomorrow, the 21st of March, the disk of the sun, allowing for refraction, is exactly cut by the northern horizon. It will show that I am at the South Pole. Just so, said I, but this statement is not mathematically correct, because the equinox does not necessarily begin at noon. Very likely, sir, but the error will not be a hundred yards, and we do not want more. Till tomorrow, then. Captain Nemo returned on board. Conseil and I remained to survey the shore, observing and studying until five o'clock. Then I went to bed, not, however, without invoking, like the Indian, the favour of the radiant orb. The next day, the 21st of March, at five in the morning, I mounted the platform. I found Captain Nemo there. The weather is lightening a bit, said he. I have some hope. After breakfast, we will go on shore and choose a post for observation. That point settled, I sought Ned Land. I wanted to take him with me, but the obstinate Canadian refused, and I saw that his taciturnity and his bad humour grew day by day. After all, I was not sorry for his obstinacy under the circumstances. Indeed, there were too many seals on the shore, and we ought not to lay such temptation in this unreflecting fisherman's way. Breakfast over, we went on shore. The Nautilus had gone some miles further up in the night. It was a whole league from the coast, above which reared a sharp peak about 500 yards high. The boat took me with Captain Nemo, two men of the crew, and the instruments, which consisted of a chronometer, a telescope, and a barometer. While crossing, I saw numerous whales belonging to the three kinds peculiar to the southern seas. The whale, or the English right whale, which has no dorsal fin, the humpback, with reeved chest and large whitish fins, which, in spite of its name, do not form wings, and the finback, of a yellowish-brown, the liveliest of all the cetacea. This powerful creature is heard a long way off when he throws to a great height columns of air and vapour which look like whirlwinds of smoke. These different mammals were disporting themselves in troops in the quiet waters, and I could see that this basin of the Antarctic Pole serves as a place of refuge to the cetacea too closely tracked by the hunters. I also noticed large medusae floating between the reeds. At nine, we landed. 
The sky was brightening, the clouds were flying to the south, and the fog seemed to be leaving the cold surface of the waters. Captain Nemo went towards the peak, which he doubtless meant to be his observatory. It was a painful ascent over the sharp lava and the pumice stones, in an atmosphere often impregnated with the sulfurous smell from the smoking cracks. For a man unaccustomed to walk on land, the captain climbed the steep slopes with an agility I never saw equalled, and which a hunter would have envied. We were two hours getting to the summit of this peak. From thence we looked upon a vast sea, which, towards the north, distinctly traced its boundary line upon the sky. At our feet lay fields of dazzling whiteness, over our heads a pale azure free from fog. To the north the disk of the sun seemed like a ball of fire, already horned by the cutting of the horizon. From the bosom of the water rose sheaves of liquid jets by hundreds. In the distance lay the Nautilus, like a cetacean asleep on the water. Behind us, to the south and east, an immense country and a chaotic heap of rocks and ice, the limits of which were not visible. On arriving at the summit, Captain Nemo carefully took the mean height of the barometer, for he would have to consider that in taking his observations. At a quarter to twelve, the sun, then seen only by refraction, looked like a golden disk, shedding its last rays upon this deserted continent and seas which never man had yet ploughed. Captain Nemo, furnished with a lenticular glass which, by means of a mirror, corrected the refraction, watched the orb sinking below the horizon by degrees, following a lengthened diagonal. I held the chronometer, my heart beat fast. If the disappearance of the half-disk of the sun coincided with twelve o'clock on the chronometer, we were at the pole itself. Twelve! I exclaimed. The South Pole, replied Captain Nemo, in a grave voice, handing me the glass which showed the orb cut in exactly equal parts by the horizon. I looked at the last rays crowning the peak, and the shadows mounting by degrees up its slopes, at that moment, Captain Nemo, resting with his hand on my shoulder, said, I, Captain Nemo, on this 21st day of March, 1868, have reached the South Pole on the 90th degree, and I take possession of this part of the globe, equal to one-sixth of the known continents. In whose name, Captain? In my own, sir. Saying which, Captain Nemo unfurled a black banner bearing an N in gold quartered on its bunting, then, turning towards the orb of day whose last rays lapped the horizon of the sea, he exclaimed, Adieu, sun, disappear, thou radiant orb, rest beneath this open sea, and let a night of six months spread its shadows over my new domains. Chapter 15 Accident or Incident The next day, the 22nd of March, at six in the morning, preparations for departure were begun. The last gleams of twilight were melting into night. The cold was great, the constellations shone with wonderful intensity. In the zenith glittered that wondrous southern cross, the polar bear of Antarctic regions. The thermometer showed 120 below zero, and when the wind freshened, it was most biting. Flakes of ice increased in the open water. The sea seemed everywhere alike. Numerous blackish patches spread on the surface, showing the formation of fresh ice. Evidently, the southern basin, frozen during the six winter months, was absolutely inaccessible. What became of the whales in that time? Doubtless they went below the icebergs, seeking more practicable seas. As to the seals and morses, 
Accustomed to live in a hard climate, they remained on these icy shores. These creatures have the instinct to break holes in the ice field and to keep them open. To these holes they come for breath. When the birds, driven away by the cold, have emigrated to the north, these sea mammals remain sole masters of the polar continent. But the reservoirs were filling with water, and the Nautilus was slowly descending. At a thousand feet deep it stopped, its screw beat the waves, and it advanced straight towards the north at a speed of fifteen miles an hour. Towards night it was already floating under the immense body of the iceberg. At three in the morning I was awakened by a violent shock. I sat up in my bed and listened in the darkness when I was thrown into the middle of the room. The Nautilus, after having struck, had rebounded violently. I groped along the partition and by the staircase to the saloon, which was lit by the luminous ceiling. The furniture was upset. Fortunately, the windows were firmly set and had held fast. The pictures on the starboard side, from being no longer vertical, were clinging to the paper, whilst those of the port side were hanging at least a foot from the wall. The Nautilus was lying on its starboard side perfectly motionless. I heard footsteps and a confusion of voices, but Captain Nemo did not appear. As I was leaving the saloon, Ned Land and Conseil entered. "'What is the matter?' said I at once. "'I came to ask you, sir,' replied Conseil. "'Confound it!' exclaimed the Canadian. "'I know well enough. The Nautilus has struck, and judging by the way she lies, I do not think she will right herself as she did the first time in the Torres Straits.' "'But,' I asked, "'has she at least come to the surface of the sea?' "'We do not know,' said Conseil. "'It is easy to decide,' I answered. "'I consulted the manometer. "'To my great surprise, it showed a depth of more than a hundred and eighty fathoms. "'What does that mean?' I exclaimed. "'We must ask Captain Nemo,' said Conseil. "'But where shall we find him?' said Ned Land. "'Follow me,' I said to my companions. "'We left the saloon. "'There was no one in the library. "'At the centre staircase, by the berths of the ship's crew, there was no one.' I thought that Captain Nemo must be in the pilot's cage. It was best to wait. We all returned to the saloon. For twenty minutes we remained thus, trying to hear the slightest noise which might be made on board the Nautilus when Captain Nemo entered. He seemed not to see us. His face, generally so impassive, showed signs of uneasiness. He watched the compass silently, then the manometer, and going to the planisphere, placed his finger on a spot representing the southern seas. I would not interrupt him, but some minutes later, when he turned towards me, I said, using one of his own expressions in the Torres Straits, "'An incident, Captain?' Uh, "'No, sir. An accident this time.' "'Serious?' "'Perhaps. Is the danger immediate?' "'No.' "'The Nautilus has stranded?' "'Yes.' "'And this has happened how?' From a caprice of nature, not from the ignorance of man, not a mistake has been made in the working, but we cannot prevent equilibrium from producing its effects. We may brave human laws, but we cannot resist natural ones. Captain Nemo had chosen a strange moment for uttering this philosophical reflection. On the whole, his answer helps me little. May I ask, sir, the cause of this accident? "'An enormous block of ice, a whole mountain, has turned over,' he replied. "'When icebergs are undermined at their base by warmer water or reiterated shocks, "'their centre of gravity rises, and the whole thing turns over. "'This is what has happened. "'One of these blocks, as it fell, struck the Nautilus. "'Then, gliding under the hull, raised it with irresistible force, "'bringing it into beds which are not so thick where it is lying on its side.' 
but can we not get the Nautilus off by emptying its reservoirs so that it might regain its equilibrium? That's her is being done at this moment. You can hear the pump working. Look at the needle of the manometer. It shows that the Nautilus is rising, but the block of ice is floating with it. And until some obstacle stops its ascending motion, our position cannot be altered. Indeed, the Nautilus still held the same position to starboard. Doubtless it would right itself when the block stopped. But at this moment, who knows if we may not be frightfully crushed between two glassy surfaces. I reflected on all the consequences of our position. Captain Nemo never took his eyes off the manometer. Since the fall of the iceberg, the Nautilus had risen about 150 feet, but it still made the same angle with the perpendicular. Suddenly a slight movement was felt in the hold. Evidently it was writing a little. Things hanging in the saloon were sensibly returning to their normal position. The partitions were nearing the upright. No one spoke. With beating hearts we watched and felt the straightening. The boards became horizontal under our feet. Ten minutes passed. At last, we have righted, I exclaimed. Yes, said Captain Nemo, going to the door of the saloon. But are we floating? I asked. Certainly, he replied, since the reservoirs are not empty, and when empty the Nautilus must rise to the surface of the sea. We were in open sea, but at a distance of about ten yards, on either side of the Nautilus, rose a dazzling wall of ice, above and beneath the same wall, above because the lower surface of the iceberg stretched over us like an immense ceiling, beneath because the overturned block, having slid by degrees, had found a resting place on the lateral walls which kept it in that position. The Nautilus was really imprisoned in a perfect tunnel of ice more than twenty yards in breadth, filled with quiet water. It was easy to get out of it by either going forward or backward, and then to make a free passage under the iceberg. Some hundreds of yards deeper, the luminous ceiling had been extinguished, but the saloon was still resplendent with intense light. It was the most powerful reflection from the glass partition sent violently back to the sheets of the lantern. I cannot describe the effect of the voltaic rays upon the great blocks so capriciously cut. Upon every angle, every ridge, every facet was thrown a different light, according to the nature of the veins running through the ice. A dazzling mine of gems, particularly of sapphires, their blue rays crossing with the green of the emerald. Here and there were opal shades of wonderful softness, running through bright spots like diamonds of fire, the brilliancy of which the eye could not bear. The power of the lantern seemed increasingly a hundredfold, like a lamp through the lenticular plates of a first-class lighthouse. How beautiful, how beautiful, cried Conseil. Yes, I said, it is a wonderful sight, is it not, Ned? Yes, confound it, yes, answered Ned Land, it is superb. I am mad at being obliged to admit it. No one has ever seen anything like it, but... The sight may cost us dear, and if I may say all, I think we are seeing here things which God never intended man to see. Ned was right. It was too beautiful. Suddenly a cry from Conseil made me turn. What is it? I asked. Shut your eyes, sir. Do not look, sir. Saying which, Conseil clapped his hands over his eyes. But what is the matter, my boy? I am dazzled, blinded. 
My eyes turned involuntarily towards the glass, but I could not stand the fire which seemed to devour them. I understood what had happened. The Nautilus had put on full speed. All the quiet luster of the ice walls was at once changed into flashes of lightning. The fire from these myriads of diamonds was blinding. It required some time to calm our troubled looks. At last the hands were taken down. Faith, I should never have believed it, said Conseil. It was then five in the morning, and at that moment a shock was felt at the bows of the Nautilus. I knew that its spur had struck a block of ice. It must have been a false manoeuvre, for this submarine tunnel, obstructed by blocks, was not very easy navigation. I thought that Captain Nemo, by changing his course, would either turn these obstacles or else follow the windings of the tunnel. In any case, the road before us could not be entirely blocked but contrary to my expectations, the Nautilus took a decided retrograde motion. "'We are going backwards,' said Conseil. "'Yes,' I replied, "'the end of the tunnel can have no egress.' "'And then?' "'Then,' said I, "'the working is easy. We must go back again and go out with the southern opening. That is all.' In speaking thus, I wished to appear more confident than I really was, but the retrograde motion of the Nautilus was increasing, and reversing the screw, it carried us at great speed. "'It will be a hindrance,' said Ned. "'What does it matter, some hours more or less, provided we get out at last?' "'Yes,' repeated Ned Land, "'provided we do get out at last.' For a short time I walked from the saloon to the library. My companions were silent. I soon threw myself on an ottoman and took a book, which my eyes overran mechanically. A quarter of an hour after, Conseil, approaching me, said, "'Is what you are reading very interesting, sir?' "'Very interesting,' I replied. "'I should think so, sir. It is your own book you are reading.' "'My book?' And indeed I was holding in my hand the work on the great submarine depths. I did not even dream of it. I closed the book and returned to my walk. Ned and Conseil rose to go. "'Stay here, my friends,' said I, detaining them. "'Let us remain together until we are out of this block.' "'As you please, sir,' Conseil replied. Some hours passed. I often looked at the instruments hanging from the partition. The manometer showed that the Nautilus kept at a constant depth of more than three hundred yards. The compass still pointed to south. The log indicated a speed of twenty miles an hour, which, in such a cramped space, was very good.' But Captain Nemo knew that he could not hasten too much, and that minutes were worth ages to us. At twenty-five minutes past eight, a second shock took place, this time from behind. I turned pale. My companions were close by my side. I seized Conseil's hand. Our looks expressed our feelings better than words. At this moment, the captain entered the saloon. I went up to him. "'Our course is barred southwards?' I asked. "'Yes, sir. The iceberg has shifted.' and closed every outlet. We are blocked up, then? Yes. Chapter 16. Want of Air Thus, around the Nautilus, above and below, was an impenetrable wall of ice. We were prisoners to the iceberg. I watched the captain. His countenance had resumed its habitual imperturbability. Gentlemen, he said calmly, there are two ways of dying in the circumstances in which we are placed. This puzzling person had the air of a mathematical professor lecturing his pupils. The first is to be crushed. The second is to die of suffocation. 
I do not speak of the possibility of dying of hunger, for the supply of provisions in the Nautilus will certainly last longer than we shall. Let us then calculate our chances. As to suffocation, Captain, I replied, that is not to be feared, because our reservoirs are full. Just so. But they will only yield two days' supply of air. Now, for thirty-six hours we have been hidden under the water, and already the heavy atmosphere of the Nautilus requires renewal. In forty-eight hours our reserve will be exhausted. Well, Captain, can we be delivered before forty-eight hours? We will attempt it, at least, by piercing the wall that surrounds us. On which side? Sound will tell us. I am going to run the Nautilus aground on the lower bank, and my men will attack the iceberg on the side that is least thick. Captain Nemo went out. Soon I discovered by a hissing noise that the water was entering the reservoirs. The Nautilus sank slowly and rested on the ice at a depth of 350 yards, the depth at which the lower bank was immersed. My friends, I said, our situation is serious, but I rely on your courage and energy. Sir, replied the Canadian, I am ready to do anything for the general safety. Good, Ned, and I held out my hand to the Canadian. And I will add, he continued, that being as handy with the pickaxe as with the harpoon, if I can be useful to the captain, he can command my services. He will not refuse your help. Come, Ned. I led him to the room where the crew of the Nautilus were putting on their cork jackets. I told the captain of Ned's proposal, which he accepted. The Canadian put on his sea costume and was ready as soon as his companions. When Ned was dressed, I re-entered the drawing room where the panes of glass were open and posted near Conseil. I examined the ambient beds that supported the Nautilus. Some instants after, we saw a dozen of the crew set foot on the bank of ice and among them Ned Land, easily known by his stature. Captain Nemo was with them. Before proceeding to dig the walls, he took the soundings to be sure of working in the right direction. Long sounding lines were sunk in the side walls, but after 15 yards, they were again stopped by the thick wall. It was useless to attack it on the ceiling-like surface, since the iceberg itself measured more than 400 yards in height. Captain Nemo then sounded the lower surface. There, ten yards of wall separated us from the water, so great was the thickness of the ice field. It was necessary, therefore, to cut from it a piece equal in extent to the waterline of the Nautilus. There were about 6,000 cubic yards to detach, so as to dig a hole by which we could ascend to the ice field. The work had begun immediately and carried on with indefatigable energy. Instead of digging around the Nautilus, which would have involved greater difficulty, Captain Nemo had an immense trench made at eight yards from the port quarter. Then the men set to work simultaneously with their screws on several points of its circumference. Presently, the pickaxe attacked this compact matter vigorously, and large blocks were detached from the mass. By a curious effect of specific gravity, these blocks, lighter than water, fled, so to speak, to the vault of the tunnel, that increased in thickness at the top in proportion as it diminished at the base, but that mattered little, so long as the lower part grew thinner. After two hours' hard work, Ned Land came in exhausted. He and his comrades were replaced by new workers, whom Conseil and I joined. The second lieutenant of the Nautilus superintended us. The water seemed singularly cold, but I soon got warm handling the pickaxe. My movements were free enough, although they were made under a pressure of thirty atmospheres. When I re-entered, 
After working two hours to take some food and rest, I found a perceptible difference between the pure fluid with which the engine supplied me and the atmosphere of the Nautilus, already charged with carbonic acid. The air had not been renewed for 48 hours, and its vivifying qualities were considerably enfeebled. However, after a lapse of 12 hours, we had only raised a block of ice one yard thick on the marked surface, which was about 600 cubic yards. Reckoning that it took 12 hours to accomplish this much, it would take five nights and four days to bring this enterprise to a satisfactory conclusion. Five nights and four days, and we have only air enough for two days in the reservoirs. Without taking into account, said Ned, that even if we get out of this infernal prison, we shall also be imprisoned under the iceberg, shut out from all possible communication with the atmosphere. True enough. Who could then foresee the minimum of time necessary for our deliverance? We might be suffocated before the Nautilus could regain the surface of the waves. Was it destined to perish in this ice tomb with all those it enclosed? The situation was terrible, but everyone had the look of danger in the face and each was determined to do his duty to the last. As I expected, during the night, a new block a yard square was carried away and still further sank the immense hollow, but in the morning when, dressed in my cork jacket, I traversed the slushy mass at a temperature of six or seven degrees below zero, I remarked that the side walls were gradually closing in. The beds of water furthest from the trench that were not warmed by the men's work showed a tendency to solidification. In presence of this new and imminent danger, what would become of our chances of safety, and how hinder the solidification of this liquid medium that would burst the partitions of the Nautilus-like glass? I did not tell my companions of this new danger. What was the good of damping the energy they displayed in the painful work of escape? But when I went on board again, I told Captain Nemo of this grave complication. I know it, he said, in that calm tone which could counteract the most terrible apprehensions. It is one danger more, but I see no way of escaping it. The only chance of safety is to go quicker than solidification. We must be beforehand with it. That is all. On this day, for several hours, I used my pickaxe vigorously. The work kept me up. Besides, to work was to quit the Nautilus and breathe directly the pure air drawn from the reservoirs and supplied by our apparatus, and to quit the impoverished and vitiated atmosphere. Towards evening, the trench was dug one yard deeper. When I returned on board, I was nearly suffocated by the carbonic acid with which the air was filled. Ah, if we only had the chemical means to drive away this deleterious gas, we had plenty of oxygen. All this water contained a considerable quantity, and by dissolving it with our powerful piles, it would restore the vivifying fluid. I had thought well over it, but of what good was that, since the carbonic acid produced by our respiration had invaded every part of the vessel? To absorb it, it was necessary to fill some jars with caustic potash and to shake them incessantly. Now, this substance was wanting on board, and nothing could replace it. On that evening, Captain Nemo ought to open the taps of his reservoirs and let some pure air into the interior of the Nautilus. Without this precaution, we could not get rid of the sense of suffocation. The next day, March the 26th, I resumed my miner's work in beginning the fifth yard. The side walls and the lower surface of the iceberg thickened visibly. It was evident that they would meet before the Nautilus was able to disengage itself. Despair seized me for a moment. My pickaxe nearly fell from my hands. 
What was the good of digging if I must be suffocated, crushed by the water that was turning into stone? Just then Captain Nemo passed near me. I touched his hand and showed him the walls of our prison. The wall to port had advanced to at least four yards from the hull of the Nautilus. The captain understood me and signed me to follow him. We went on board. I took off my cork jacket and accompanied him into the drawing room. Monsieur Aranax, we must attempt some desperate means, or we shall be sealed up in this solidified water as in cement. Yes, but what is to be done? Ah, if my Nautilus were strong enough to bear this pressure without being crushed. Well, I asked, not catching the captain's idea. Do you not understand, he replied, that this congelation of water will help us? Do you not see that by its solidification it would burst through this field of ice that imprisons us, as when it freezes it bursts the hardest stones? Do you not perceive that it would be an agent of safety instead of destruction? Yes, Captain, perhaps, but whatever resistance to crushing the Nautilus possesses, it could not support this terrible pressure and would be flattened like an iron plate. I know it, sir. Therefore, we must not reckon on the aid of nature, but on our own exertions. We must stop this solidification. Not only will the side walls be pressed together, but there is not ten feet of water behind or before the Nautilus. The congelation gains on us on all sides. How long will the air in the reservoirs last for us to breathe on board? The captain looked in my face. After tomorrow, they will be empty. A cold sweat came over me. However, ought I to have been astonished by the answer? On March the 22nd, the Nautilus was in the open polar seas. We were at 26 degrees. For five days we had lived on the reserve on board, and what was left of the respirable air must be kept for the workers. Even now, as I write, my recollection is still so vivid that an involuntary terror seizes me, and my lungs seem to be without air. Meanwhile, Captain Nemo reflected silently, and evidently an idea had struck him, but he seemed to reject it. At last, these words escaped his lips. Boiling water, he muttered. Boiling water, I cried. Yes, sir. We are enclosed in a space that is relatively confined. Would not jets of boiling water, constantly injected by the pumps, raise the temperature in this part and stay the congelation? Let us try it, I said resolutely. Let us try it, Professor. The thermometer then stood at seven degrees outside. Captain Nemo took me to the galleys, where the vast distillatory machine stood that furnished the drinkable water by evaporation. They filled these with water, and all the electric heat from the piles was thrown through the worms bathed in the liquid. In a few minutes, this water reached 100 degrees. It was directed towards the pumps while fresh water replaced it in proportion. The heat developed by the troughs was such that cold water, drawn up from the sea after only having gone through the machines, came boiling into the body of the pump. The injection was begun and three hours after, the thermometer marked six degrees below zero outside. One degree was gained. Two hours later, the thermometer only marked four degrees. We shall succeed, I said to the captain, after having anxiously watched the result of the operation. I think, he answered, that we shall not be crushed. We have no more suffocation to fear. During the night, the temperature of the water rose to one degree below zero. The injections could not carry it to a higher point, but as the congelation of the seawater produces at least two degrees, 
I was at least reassured against the dangers of solidification. The next day, March the 27th, six yards of ice had been cleared. Twelve feet only remained to be cleared away. There was yet 48 hours' work. The air could not be renewed in the interior of the Nautilus, and this day would make it worse. An intolerable weight oppressed me. Towards three o'clock in the evening, this feeling rose to a violent degree. Yawns dislocated my jaws, my lungs panted as they inhaled this burning fluid, which became rarefied more and more. A moral torpor took hold of me. I was powerless, almost unconscious. My brave Conseil, though exhibiting the same symptoms and suffering in the same manner, never left me. He took my hand and encouraged me, and heard him murmur, Oh, if I could only not breathe so as to leave more air for my master. Tears came into my eyes on hearing him speak thus. If our situation to all was intolerable in the interior, with what haste and gladness would we put on our cork jackets to work in our turn? Pickaxes sounded on the frozen ice beds, our arms ached, the skin was torn off our hands. But what were these fatigues? What did the wounds matter? Vital air came into the lungs. We breathed. We breathed. All this time, no one prolonged his voluntary task beyond the prescribed time. His task accomplished, each one handed in turn to his panting companions the apparatus that supplied him with life. Captain Nemo set the example and submitted first to this severe discipline. When the time came, he gave up his apparatus to another and returned to the vitiated air on board, calm, unflinching, unmurmuring. On that day, the ordinary work was accomplished with unusual vigour. Only two yards remained to be raised from the surface. Two yards only separated us from the open sea. But the reservoirs were nearly emptied of air. The little that remained ought to be kept for the workers, not a particle for the Nautilus. When I went back on board, I was half suffocated. What a night! I know not how to describe it. The next day my breathing was oppressed. Dizziness accompanied the pain in my head and made me like a drunken man. My companions showed the same symptoms. Some of the crew had rattling in the throat. On that day, the sixth of our imprisonment, Captain Nemo, finding the pickaxe's work too slowly, resolved to crush the ice bed that still separated us from the liquid sheet. This man's coolness and energy never forsook him. He subdued his physical pains by moral force. By his orders, the vessel was lightened, that is to say, raised from the ice bed by a change in the specific gravity. When it floated, they towed it so as to bring it above the immense trench made on the level of the waterline. Then, filling his reservoirs of water, he descended and shut himself up in the hole. Just then, all the crew came on board, and the double door of communication was shut. The Nautilus then rested on a bed of ice which was not one yard thick, and which the sounding leads had perforated in a thousand places. The taps of the reservoirs were then opened, and a hundred cubic yards of water was let in, increasing the weight of the Nautilus to eighteen hundred tons. We waited, we listened, forgetting our sufferings in hope. Our safety depended on this last chance. Notwithstanding the buzzing in my head, I soon heard the humming sound under the hull of the Nautilus. The ice cracked with a singular noise, like tearing paper, and the Nautilus sank. We are off, murmured Conseil in my ear. 
I could not answer him. I seized his hand and pressed it convulsively. All at once, carried away by its frightful overcharge, the Nautilus sank like a bullet under the waters. That is to say, it fell as if it was in a vacuum. Then all the electric force was put in the pumps that soon began to let the water out of the reservoirs. After some minutes, our fall was stopped. Soon, too, the manometer indicated an ascending movement. The screw, going at full speed, made the iron hull tremble to its very bolts and drew us towards the north. But if this floating under the iceberg is to last another day before we reach the open sea, I shall be dead first. Half-stretched upon a divan in the library, I was suffocating. My face was purple, my lips blue, my faculties suspended. I neither saw nor heard. All notion of time had gone from my mind. My muscles could not contract. I do not know how many hours passed thus, but I was conscious of the agony that was coming over me. I felt as if I was going to die. Suddenly, I came to. Some breaths of air penetrated my lungs. Had we risen to the surface of the waves? Were we free of the iceberg? No. Ned and Conseil, my two brave friends, were sacrificing themselves to save me. Some particles of air still remained at the bottom of one apparatus. Instead of using it, they had kept it for me. And while they were being suffocated, they gave me life drop by drop. I wanted to push back the thing. They held my hands, and for some moments I breathed freely. I looked at the clock. It was eleven in the morning. It ought to be the 28th of March. The Nautilus went at a frightful pace, forty miles an hour. It literally tore through the water. Where was Captain Nemo? Had he succumbed? Were his companions dead with him? At the moment, the manometer indicated that we were not more than twenty feet from the surface. A mere plate of ice separated us from the atmosphere. Could we not break it? Perhaps, in any case, the Nautilus was going to attempt it. I felt that it was in an oblique position, lowering the stern and raising the bows. The introduction of water had been the means of disturbing its equilibrium. Then, impelled by its powerful screw, it attacked the ice field from beneath it like a formidable battering ram. It broke it by backing and then rushing forward against the field, which gradually gave way, and at last, dashing suddenly against it, shot forwards on the ice field that crushed beneath its weight. The panel was opened, one might say torn off, and the pure air came in in abundance to all parts of the Nautilus. Chapter 17 From Cape Horn to the Amazon How I got onto the platform I have no idea. Perhaps the Canadian had carried me there, but I breathed. I inhaled the vivifying sea air. My two companions were getting drunk with the fresh particles. The other unhappy men had been so long without food that they could not with impunity indulge in the simplest elements that were given them. We, on the contrary, had no end to restrain ourselves. We could draw this air freely into our lungs, and it was the breeze, the breeze alone, that filled us with this keen enjoyment. Ah, said Conseil, how delightful this oxygen is. Master need not fear to breathe it. There is enough for everybody. Ned Land did not speak, but he opened his jaws wide enough to frighten a shark. Our strength soon returned, and when I looked round me, I saw we were alone on the platform. The foreign seamen in the Nautilus were contented with the air that circulated in the interior, and none of them had come up to drink in the open air. 
The first words I spoke were words of gratitude and thankfulness to my two companions. Ned and Conseil had prolonged my life during the last hours of this long agony. All my gratitude could not repay such devotion. My friends, said I, we are bound one to the other forever, and I am under infinite obligations to you. Which I shall take advantage of, exclaimed the Canadian. What do you mean? said Conseil. I mean that I shall take you with me when I leave this infernal Nautilus. Well, said Conseil, after all this, are we going right? Yes, I replied, for we are going the way of the sun, and here is the sun in the north. No doubt, said Ned Land, but it remains to be seen whether he will bring the ship into the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean, that is, into the frequented or deserted seas. I could not answer that question, and I feared that Captain Nemo would rather take us to the vast ocean that touches the coasts of Asia and America at the same time. He would thus complete the tour around the submarine world and return to those waters in which the Nautilus could sail freely. We ought, before long, to settle this important point. The Nautilus went at a rapid pace. The polar circle was soon passed, and the course shaped for Cape Horn, we were off the American point, March 31st, at seven o'clock in the evening. Then all our past sufferings were forgotten. The remembrance of that imprisonment in the ice was effaced from our minds. We only thought of the future. Captain Nemo did not appear again, either in the drawing room or on the platform. The point shown each day on the planisphere, and marked by the lieutenant, showed me the exact direction of the Nautilus. Now, on that evening, it was evident, to my great satisfaction, that we were going back to the north by the Atlantic. The next day, April the 1st, when the Nautilus ascended to the surface some minutes before noon, we sighted land to the west. It was Terra del Fuego, which the first navigators named thus from seeing the quantity of smoke that rose from the natives' huts. The coast seemed low to me, but in the distance rose high mountains. I even thought I had a glimpse of Mount Sarmiento that rises 2,070 yards above the level of the sea with a very pointed summit, which, according as it is misty or clear, is a sign of fine or of wet weather. At this moment, the peak was clearly defined against the sky. The Nautilus, diving again under the water, approached the coast, which was only some few miles off. From the glass windows in the drawing room, I saw long seaweeds, of which the open polar sea contains so many specimens, with their sharp polished filaments. They measured about 300 yards in length, real cables, thicker than one's thumb, and having great tenacity, they are often used as ropes for vessels. Another weed, known as velp, with leaves four feet long, buried in the coral concretions, hung at the bottom. It served as nest and food for myriads of crustacea and mollusks, crabs and cuttlefish. Their seals and otters had splendid repasts, eating the flesh of fish with sea vegetables, according to the English fashion. Over this fertile and luxuriant ground, the Nautilus passed with great rapidity. Towards evening it approached the Falkland group, the rough summits of which I recognised the following day. The depth of the sea was moderate. On the shores our nets brought in beautiful specimens of seaweed, and particularly a certain focus, the roots of which were filled with the best mussels in the world. Geese and ducks fell by dozens on the platform, and soon took their places in the pantry on board. When the last heights of the Falklands had disappeared from the horizon, the Nautilus sank to between 20 and 25 yards and followed the American coast. Captain Nemo did not show himself. Until the 3rd of April, 
we did not quit the shores of Patagonia, sometimes under the ocean, sometimes on the surface. The Nautilus passed beyond the last estuary formed by the Uruguay. Its direction was northwards and followed the long windings of the coast of South America. We had then made 1,600 miles since our embarkation in the seas of Japan. About 11 o'clock in the morning, the Tropic of Capricorn was crossed on the 37th meridian, and we passed Cape Frio, standing out to sea. Captain Nemo, to Ned Land's great displeasure, did not like the neighbourhood of the inhabited coasts of Brazil, for we went at a giddy speed. Not a fish, not a bird of the swiftest kind could follow us, and the natural curiosities of these seas escaped all observation. This speed was kept up for several days, and in the evening of the 9th of April we sighted the most westerly point of South America that forms Cape San Roque. But then the Nautilus swerved again, and sought the lowest depths of a submarine valley which is between this cape and Sierra Leone on the African coast. This valley bifurcates to the parallel of the Antilles, and terminates at the mouth by the enormous depression of 9,000 yards. In this place, the geological basin of the ocean forms, as far as the Lesser Antilles, a cliff to three and a half miles perpendicular in height, and at the parallel of the Cape Verde Islands, another wall of not less considerable, that encloses thus all the sunk continent of the Atlantic. The bottom of this immense valley is dotted with some mountains that give to these submarine places a picturesque aspect. I speak, moreover, from the manuscript charts that were in the library of the Nautilus, charts evidently due to Captain Nemo's hand and made after his personal observations. For two days the desert and deep waters were visited by means of the inclined plains. The Nautilus was furnished with long diagonal broadsides which carried it to all elevations, but on the 11th of April it rose suddenly, and land appeared at the mouth of the Amazon River, a vast estuary, the embouchure of which is so considerable that it freshens the seawater for the distance of several leagues. The equator was crossed. Twenty miles to the west were the Guineas, a French territory on which we could have found an easy refuge, but a stiff breeze was blowing, and the furious waves would not have allowed a single boat to face them. Ned Land understood that, no doubt, for he spoke not a word about it. For my part, I made no allusion to his schemes of flight, for I would not urge him to make an attempt that must inevitably fail. I made the time pass pleasantly by interesting studies. During the days of April the 11th and 12th, the Nautilus did not leave the surface of the sea, and the net brought in a marvellous haul of zoophytes, fish and reptiles. Some zoophytes had been fished up by the chain of the nets. As to the mollusks, they consisted of some I had already observed— I had now an opportunity of studying several species of fish on these shores, but I end here this catalogue, which is somewhat dry perhaps, but very exact, with a series of bony fish that I observed in passing belonging to the Apteranotes, and whose snout is white as snow, and the body of a beautiful black, marked with a very long, loose, fleshy strip. I must also not omit to mention fish that Conseil will long remember, and with good reason. One of our nets had hauled up a sort of very flat ray fish, which, with the tail cut off, formed a perfect disc and weighed twenty ounces. It was white underneath, red above, with large round spots of dark blue encircled with black, very glossy skin terminating in a bilobed fin. Laid out on the platform, it struggled, tried to turn itself by convulsive movements, and made so many efforts that one last turn had nearly sent it into the sea. But Conseil, 
not wishing to let the fish go, rushed to it, and before I could prevent him, had seized it with both hands. In a moment, he was overthrown, his legs in the air and half his body paralysed, crying, Oh, master, master, help me! It was the first time the poor boy had spoken to me so familiarly. The Canadian and I took him up and rubbed his contracted arms till he became sensible. The unfortunate Conseil had attacked a cramp fish of the most dangerous kind. This odd animal, in a medium conductor like water, strikes fish at several yards' distance, so great is the power of its electric organ, the two principal surfaces of which do not measure less than 27 feet square. The next day, April the 12th, the Nautilus approached the Dutch coast, near the mouth of the Moroni. There, several groups of sea cows herded together. They were manatees that, like the dugong and the stellera, belonged to the Skenian order. These beautiful animals, peaceable and inoffensive, from 18 to 21 feet in length, weighed at least 1,600 weight. I told Ned Land and Conseil that provident nature had assigned an important role to these mammalia. Indeed, they, like the seals, are designed to graze on the submarine prairies, and thus destroy the accumulation of weed that obstructs the tropical rivers. And do you know, I added, what has been the result since men have almost entirely annihilated this useful race, that the putrefied weeds have poisoned the air, and the poisoned air causes the yellow fever that desolates these beautiful countries. Enormous vegetations are multiplied under the torrid seas, and the evil is irresistibly developed from the mouth of the Rio de la Plata to Florida. If we are to believe Toussaint, this plague is nothing to what it would be if the seas were cleaned of whales and seals. Then, infested with pulps, medusae, and cuttlefish, they would become immense centres of infection, since their waves would not possess these vast stomachs that God had charged to infest the surface of the seas. Chapter 18. The Pulps for several days the Nautilus kept off the American coast. Evidently it did not wish to risk the tides of the Gulf of Mexico or of the Sea of the Antilles. April the 16th we sighted Martinique and Guadeloupe from a distance of about 30 miles. I saw their tall peaks for an instant. The Canadian, who counted on carrying out his project in the Gulf by either landing or hailing one of the numerous boats that coast from one island to another, was quite disheartened. Flight would have been quite practicable if Ned Land had been able to take possession of the boat without the captain's knowledge, but in the open sea it could not be thought of. The Canadian, Conseil and I had a long conversation on this subject. For six months we had been prisoners on board the Nautilus. We had travelled 17,000 leagues, and as Ned Land said, there was no reason why it should come to an end. We could hope nothing from the captain of the Nautilus, but only from ourselves. Besides, for some time past, he had become graver, more retired, less sociable. He seemed to shun me. I met him rarely. Formerly he was pleased to explain the submarine marvels to me. Now he left me to my studies and came no more to the saloon. What change had come over him? For what cause? For my part, I did not wish to bury with me my curious and novel studies. I had now the power to write the true book of the sea, and this book, sooner or later, I wished to see daylight. The land nearest us was the archipelago of the Bahamas. There rose high submarine cliffs covered with large weeds. It was about eleven o'clock when Ned Land drew my attention to a formidable pricking, like the sting of an ant which was produced by means of large seaweeds. Well, I said, 
There are proper caverns for pulps, and I should not be astonished to see some of these monsters. What? said Conseil. Cuttlefish, real cuttlefish, of the cephalopod class. No, I said, pulps of huge dimensions. I will never believe that such animals exist, said Ned. Well, said Conseil, with the most serious air in the world, I remember perfectly to have seen a large vessel drawn under the waves by an octopus's arm. You saw that? said the Canadian. Yes, Ned. With your own eyes. With my own eyes. Where, pray, might that be? At St. Malo, answered Conseil. In the port, said Ned, ironically. No, in a church, replied Conseil. In a church, cried the Canadian. Yes, friend Ned, in a picture representing the pulp in question. Good, said Ned Land, bursting out laughing. He is quite right, I said. I have heard of this picture, but the subject represented is taken from a legend, and you know what to think of legends in the matter of natural history. Besides, when it is a question of monsters, the imagination is apt to run wild. Not only is it supposed that these pulps can draw down vessels, but a certain Olos Magnus speaks of an octopus a mile long that is more like an island than an animal. It is also said that the Bishop of Nidros was building an altar on an immense rock. Mass finished, the rock began to walk and return to the sea. The rock was a pulp. Another bishop, Pontopidon, speaks also of a pulp on which a regiment of cavalry could manoeuvre. Lastly, the ancient naturalists speak of monsters whose mouths were like gulfs and which were too large to pass through the Straits of Gibraltar. But how much is true of these stories? asked Conseil. Nothing, my friends, at least of that which passes the limit of truth to get to fable or legend. Nevertheless, there must be some ground for the imagination of the storytellers. One cannot deny that pulps and cuttlefish exist of a large species, inferior, however, to the cetaceans. Aristotle has stated the dimensions of a cuttlefish as five cubits, or nine feet two inches, our fishermen frequently see some that are more than four feet long. Some skeletons of pulps are preserved in the museums of Trieste and Montpellier that measure two yards in length. Besides, according to the calculations of some naturalists, one of these animals, only six feet long, would have tentacles twenty-seven feet long. That would suffice to make a formidable monster. Do they fish for them in these days? asked Ned. If they do not fish for them, sailors see them, at least. One of my friends, Captain Paul Bow of Havre, has often affirmed that he met one of these monsters of colossal dimensions in the Indian seas, but the most astonishing fact, and which does not permit the denial of the existence of these gigantic animals, happened some years ago, in 1861. What is the fact? asked Ned Land. This is it. In 1861, to the northeast of Tenerife, very nearly in the same latitude we are in now, the crew of the dispatch box Alector perceived a monstrous cuttlefish swimming in the waters. Captain Bouger went near to the animal and attacked it with harpoon and guns, without much success, for balls and harpoons glided over the soft flesh. After several fruitless attempts, the crew tried to pass a slipknot round the body of the mollusk. The noose slipped as far as the tail fins and there stopped. They tried then to haul it on board, but its weight was so considerable that the tightness of the cord separated the tail from the body, and deprived of this ornament, he disappeared under the water. Indeed, is that a fact? An indisputable fact, my good Ned. 
They proposed to name this pulp Bouget's Cuttlefish. What length was it? asked the Canadian. Did it not measure about six yards? said Conseil, who posted at the window was examining again the irregular windings of the cliff. Precisely, I replied. Its head, rejoined Conseil, was it not crowned with eight tentacles that beat the water like a nest of serpents? Precisely. Had not its eyes placed at the back of its head considerable development? Yes, Conseil. And was not its mouth like a parrot's beak? Exactly, Conseil. Oh, very well. No offence to master, he replied quietly. If this is not Bouget's cuttlefish, it is at least one of its brothers. I looked at Conseil. Ned Land hurried to the window. What a horrible beast, he cried. I looked in my turn and could not repress a gesture of disgust. Before my eyes was a horrible monster worthy to figure in the legends of the marvellous. It was an immense cuttlefish being eight yards long. It swam crossways in the direction of the Nautilus with great speed, watching us with its enormous staring green eyes. Its eight arms, or rather feet, fixed to its head, that have given the name of cephalopod to these animals, were twice as long as its body and were twisted like the fury's hair. One could see the 250 air holes on the inner side of the tentacles. The monster's mouth, a horned beak like a parrot's, opened and shut vertically, its tongue, a horned substance, furnished with several rows of pointed teeth, came out quivering from this veritable pair of shears. What a freak of nature! A bird's beak on a mollusk! Its spindle-like body formed a fleshy mass that might weigh 4,000 to 5,000 pounds, the varying colour changing with great rapidity, according to the irritation of the animal, passed successfully from livid grey to reddish-brown. What irritated this mollusk? No doubt the presence of the Nautilus, more formidable than itself, and on which its suckers or its jaws had no hold. Yet what monsters these pulps are, what vitality the creator has given them, what vigour in their movements, and they possess three hearts. Chance has brought us in presence of this cuttlefish, and I did not wish to lose the opportunity of carefully studying this specimen of cephalopods. I overcame the horror that inspired me, and taking a pencil, began to draw it. Perhaps this is the same which the elector saw, said Conseil. No, replied the Canadian, for this is whole, and the other had lost its tail. That is no reason, I replied. The arms and tails of these animals are reformed by renewal, and in seven years the tail of Bouger's cuttlefish has no doubt had time to grow. By this time, other pulps appeared at the port light. I counted seven. They formed a procession after the Nautilus, and I heard their beaks gnashing against the iron hull. I continued my work. These monsters kept in the water with such precision that they seemed immovable. Suddenly, the Nautilus stopped. A shock made it tremble in every plate. Have we struck something? I asked. In any case, replied the Canadian, we shall be free, for we are floating. The Nautilus was floating, no doubt, but it did not move. A minute passed. Captain Nemo, followed by his lieutenant, entered the drawing-room. I had not seen him for some time. He seemed dull. Without noticing or speaking to us, he went to the panel, looked at the pulps, and said something to his lieutenant. The latter went out. Soon the panels were shut. The ceiling was lighted. I went towards the captain. "'A curious collection of pulps?' I said. Yes, indeed, Mr. Naturalist, he replied, and we are going to fight them, man to beast. I looked at him. 
I thought I had not heard aright. Man to beast, I replied. Yes, sir, the screw is stopped. I think that the horny jaws of one of the cuttlefish is entangled in the blades. That is what prevents our moving. What are you going to do? Rise to the surface and slaughter this vermin. A difficult enterprise. Yes, indeed, the electric bullets are powerless against the soft flesh, where they do not find resistance enough to go off, but we shall attack them with the hatchet. And the harpoon, sir, said the Canadian, if you do not refuse my help. I will accept it, Masterland. We will follow you, I said, and following Captain Nemo we went towards the central staircase. There about ten men with boarding hatchets were ready for the attack. Conseil and I took two hatchets, Ned Land seized a harpoon. The Nautilus had then risen to the surface. One of the sailors, posted on the top ladder step, unscrewed the bolts of the panels, but hardly were the screws loosed when the panel rose with great violence, evidently drawn by the suckers of a pulp's arm. Immediately, one of these arms slid like a serpent down the opening, and twenty others were above. With one blow of the axe, Captain Nemo cut this formidable tentacle that slid wriggling down the ladder. Just as we were pressing one on the other to reach the platform, two other arms lashing the air came down on the seaman placed before Captain Nemo and lifted him with irresistible power. Captain Nemo uttered a cry and rushed out. We hurried after him. What a scene! The unhappy man, seized by the tentacle and fixed to the suckers, was balanced in the air at the caprice of this enormous trunk. He rattled in his throat. He was stifled. He cried, Help! Help! These words spoken in French, startled me. I had a fellow countryman on board, perhaps several. That heart-rending cry, I shall hear it to the end of my life. The unfortunate man was lost. Who could rescue him from that powerful pressure? However, Captain Nemo had rushed to the pulp, and with one blow of the axe had cut through one arm. His lieutenant struggled furiously against other monsters that crept on the flanks of the Nautilus. The crew fought with their axes. The Canadian, Conseil and I buried our weapons in the fleshy masses. A strong smell of musk penetrated the atmosphere. It was horrible. For one instant, I thought the unhappy man, entangled with the pulp, would be torn from its powerful suction. Seven of the eight arms had been cut off. Only one wriggled in the air, brandishing the victim like a feather. But just as Captain Nemo and his lieutenant threw themselves on it, the animal ejected a stream of black liquid. We were blinded by it. When the cloud dispersed, the cuttlefish had disappeared, and my unfortunate countryman with it. Ten or twelve pulps now invaded the platform and the sides of the Nautilus. We rolled pell-mell into the midst of this nest of serpents that wriggled on the platform in the waves of blood and ink. It seemed as though these slimy tentacles sprang up like the Hydra's heads. Ned Land's harpoon at each stroke was plunged into the staring eyes of the cuttlefish, but my bold companion was suddenly overturned by the tentacles of a monster he had not been able to avoid. Ah, how my heart beat with emotion and horror. The formidable beak of a cuttlefish was open over Ned Land. The unhappy man would be cut in two. I rushed to his succour, but Captain Nemo was before me. His axe disappeared between the two enormous jaws and miraculously saved, the Canadian rising plunged his harpoon deep into the triple heart of the pulp. I owed myself this revenge, said the captain to the Canadian. Ned bowed without replying. The combat had lasted a quarter of an hour. The monsters, vanquished and mutilated, left us at last and disappeared under the waves. Captain Nemo, covered with blood, nearly exhausted, gazed upon the sea that had swallowed up one of his companions 
and great tears gathered in his eyes. Chapter 19 The Gulf Stream This terrible scene of the 20th of April none of us can ever forget. I have written it under the influence of violent emotion. Since then I have revised the recital. I have read it to Conseil and to the Canadian. They found it exact as to facts, but insufficient as to effect. To paint such pictures, one must have the pen of the most illustrious of our poets, the author of The Toilers of the Deep. I have said that Captain Nemo wept while watching the waves. His grief was great. It was the second companion he had lost since our arrival on board. And what a death! That friend, crushed, stifled, bruised by the dreadful arms of a pulp, pounded by his iron jaws, would not rest with his comrades in the peaceful coral cemetery. In the midst of the struggle, it was the despairing cry uttered by the unfortunate man that had torn my heart. The poor Frenchman, forgetting his conventional language, to utter a last appeal. Amongst the crew of the Nautilus, associated with the body and soul of the captain, recoiling like him from all contact with men, I had a fellow countryman. Did he alone represent France in this mysterious association, evidently composed of individuals of diverse nationalities? It was one of these insoluble problems that rose up unceasingly before my mind. Captain Nemo entered his room, and I saw him no more for some time. But that he was sad and irresolute, I could see by the vessel of which he was the soul, and which received all his impressions. The Nautilus did not keep on its settled course. It floated about like a corpse at the will of the waves. It went at random. He could not tear himself away from the scene of the last struggle, from this sea that had devoured one of his men. Ten days passed thus. It was not till the 1st of May that the Nautilus resumed its northerly course, after having sighted the Bahamas at the mouth of the Bahama Canal. We were then following the current from the largest river to the sea, that has its banks, its fish and its proper temperatures. I mean the Gulf Stream. It is really a river that flows freely to the middle of the Atlantic, and whose water do not mix with the ocean waters. It is a salt river, salter than the surrounding sea. Its mean depth is 1,500 fathoms, its mean breadth 10 miles. In certain places, the current flows with the speed of 2 miles and a half an hour. The body of its waters is more considerable than that of all the rivers in the globe. It was on this ocean river that the Nautilus then sailed. I must add that, during the night, the phosphorescent waters of the Gulf Stream rivalled the electric power of our watchlight, especially in the stormy weather that threatened us so frequently. May the 8th, we were still crossing Cape Hatteras, at the height of the North Caroline. The width of the Gulf Stream there is 75 miles, and its depth 210 yards. The Nautilus still went at random, all supervision seemed abandoned. I thought that, under these circumstances, escape would be possible. Indeed, the inhabited shores offered anywhere an easy refuge. The sea was incessantly ploughed by the steamers that ply between New York or Boston and the Gulf of Mexico, and overrun day and night by the little schooners coasting about the several parts of the American coast. We could hope to be picked up. It was a favourable opportunity, notwithstanding the thirty miles that separated the Nautilus from the coasts of the Union. One unfortunate circumstance thwarted the Canadians' plans. The weather was very bad. We were nearing those shores where tempests are so frequent, that country of waterspouts and cyclones actually engendered by the current of the Gulf Stream. To tempt the sea in a frail boat was certain destruction. 
Ned Land owned this himself. He fretted, seized with nostalgia that flight only could cure. Master, he said that day to me, this must come to an end. I must make a clean breast of it. This Nemo is leaving land and going up the north. But I declare to you that I have had enough of the South Pole, and I will not follow him to the north. What is to be done, Ned, since flight is impracticable just now? We must speak to the captain, said he. You said nothing when we were in your native seas. I will speak, now we are in mine. When I think that before long the Nautilus will be by Nova Scotia, and that there near Newfoundland is a large bay, and into that bay the St. Lawrence empties itself, and that the St. Lawrence is my river, the river by Quebec, my native town, when I think of this, I feel furious. It makes my hair stand on end. Sir, I would rather throw myself into the sea. I will not stay here. I am stifled. The Canadian was evidently losing all patience. His vigorous nature could not stand this prolonged imprisonment. His face altered daily. His temper became more surly. I knew what he must suffer, for I was seized with homesickness myself. Nearly seven months had passed without our having any news from land. Captain Nemo's isolation, his altered spirits, especially since the flight with the pulps, his taciturnity, all made me view things in a different light. Well, sir, said Ned, seeing I did not reply. Well, Ned, do you wish me to ask Captain Nemo his intentions concerning us? Yes, sir, although he has already made them known. Yes, I wish it settled finally. Speak for me, in my name only, if you like but I so seldom meet him. He avoids me. This is all the more reason for you to go to see him. I went to my room. From thence I meant to go to Captain Nemo's. It would not do to let this opportunity of meeting him slip. I knocked at the door. No answer. I knocked again, then turned the handle. The door opened. I went in. The captain was there. Bending over his work table, he had not heard me. Resolving not to go without having spoken, I approached him. He raised his head quickly, frowned, and said roughly, You, here? What do you want? To speak to you, Captain. But I am busy, sir. I am working. I leave you at liberty to shut yourself up. Cannot I be allowed the same? This reception was not encouraging, but I was determined to hear and answer everything. Sir, I said coldly, I have to speak to you on a matter that admits of no delay. What is that, sir? he replied ironically. Have you discovered something that has escaped me? Or has the sea delivered up any new secrets? We were at cross-purposes, but before I could reply, he showed me an open manuscript on his table and said in a more serious tone, Here, Monsieur Aranax, is a manuscript written in several languages. It contains the sum of my studies of the sea, and if it pleases God, it shall not perish with me. This manuscript signed with my name, complete with the history of my life, will be shut up in a little floating case. The last survivor of all of us on board the Nautilus will throw this case into the sea, and it will go whither it is borne by the waves. This man's name, his history written by himself, his mystery would then be revealed some day. Captain, I said, I can but approve of the idea that makes you act thus, the result of your studies must not be lost, but the means you employ seems to me to be primitive. Who knows where the winds will carry this case, and in whose hands it will fall? Could you not use some other means? Could not you, or one of yours? Never, sir, he said, hastily interrupting me. 
but I and my companions are ready to keep this manuscript in store, and if you will put us at liberty... At liberty, said the captain, rising. Yes, sir, that is the subject on which I wish to question you. For seven months we have been here on board, and I ask you today, in the name of my companions and in my own, if your intention is to keep us here always. Monsieur Aranax, I will answer you today, as I did seven months ago. Whoever enters the Nautilus must never quit it. You impose actual slavery upon us. Give it what name you please. But everywhere the slave has the rights to regain his liberty. Who denies you this right? Have I ever tried to chain you with an oath? He looked at me with his arms crossed. Sir, I said, to return a second time to this subject will be neither to your nor to my taste. But as we have entered upon it, let us go through with it. I repeat, it is not only myself whom it concerns. Study is to me a relief, a diversion, a passion which could make me forget everything. Like you, I am willing to live obscure in the frail hope of bequeathing one day to future time the result of my labours. But it is otherwise with Ned Land. Every man worthy of the name deserves some consideration. Have you thought that love of liberty, hatred of slavery, can give rise to schemes of revenge in a nature like the Canadians, that he could think, attempt, and try? I was silenced. Captain Nemo rose. Whatever Ned Land thinks of, attempts, or tries, what does it matter to me? I did not seek him. It is not for my pleasure that I keep him on board. As for you, Monsieur Aranax, you are one of those who can understand everything, even silence. I have nothing more to say to you. Let this first time you have come to treat of this subject be the last. For a second time, I will not listen to you. I retired. Our situation was critical. I related my conversation to my two companions. We know now, said Ned, that we can expect nothing from this man. The Nautilus is nearing Long Island. We will escape, whatever the weather may be. But the sky became more and more threatening. Symptoms of a hurricane became manifest. The atmosphere was becoming white and misty. On the horizon, fine streaks of cirrus clouds were succeeded by masses of cumuli. Other low clouds passed swiftly by. The swollen sea rose in huge billows. The birds disappeared, with the exception of the patrels, those friends of the storm. The barometer fell sensibly and indicated an extreme extension of the vapours. The mixture of the storm glass was decomposed under the influence of the electricity that pervaded the atmosphere. The tempest burst on the 18th of May, just as the Nautilus was floating off Long Island, some miles from the port of New York. I can describe this strife of the elements, for instead of fleeing to the depths of the sea, Captain Nemo, by an unaccountable caprice, would brave it at the surface. The wind blew from the southwest at first. Captain Nemo, during the squalls, had taken his place on the platform. He had made himself fast to prevent being washed overboard by the monstrous waves. I had hoisted myself up and made myself fast also, dividing my admiration between the tempest and this extraordinary man who was coping with it. The raging sea was swept by huge cloud drifts, which were actually saturated with the waves. The Nautilus, sometimes lying on its side, sometimes standing up like a mast, rolled and pitched terribly. About five o'clock, a torrent of rain fell that lulled neither sea nor wind. The hurricane blew nearly forty leagues an hour. 
It is under these conditions that it overturns houses, breaks iron gates, displaces 24-pounders. However, the Nautilus, in the midst of the tempest, confirmed the words of a clever engineer. There is no well-constructed hull that cannot defy the sea. This was not a resisting rock, it was a steel spindle, obedient and movable, without rigging or masts, that braved its fury with impunity. However, I watched these raging seas attentively. They measured 15 feet in height and 150 to 175 yards long, and their speed of propagation was 30 feet per second. Their bulk and power increased with the depth of the water. Such waves as these, at the Hebrides, have displaced a mass weighing 8,400 pounds. They are they which, in the tempest of December the 23rd, 1864, after destroying the town of Yedo in Japan, broke the same day on the shores of America. The intensity of the tempest increased with the night. The barometer, as in 1860 at Reunion during a cyclone, fell seven-tenths at the close of day. I saw a large vessel pass the horizon, struggling painfully. She was trying to lie to half-steam to keep up above the waves. It was probably one of the steamers of the line from New York to Liverpool or Havre. It soon disappeared in the gloom. At ten o'clock in the evening... The sky was on fire. The atmosphere was streaked with vivid lightning. I could not bear the brightness of it, while the captain, looking at it, seemed to envy the spirit of the tempest. A terrible noise filled the air, a complex noise, made up of the howls of the crushed waves, the roaring of the wind, and the claps of thunder. The wind veered suddenly to all points of the horizon, and the cyclone, rising in the east, returned after passing by the north, west, and south, in the inverse course pursued by the circular storm of the southern hemisphere. Ah, that gulf stream! It deserves its name of the King of Tempests. It is that which causes those formidable cyclones, by the difference of temperature between its air and its currents. A shower of fire had succeeded the rain. The drops of water were changed to sharp spikes. One would have thought that Captain Nemo was courting a death worthy of himself, a death by lightning. As the Nautilus, pitching dreadfully, raised its steel spur in the air, it seemed to act as a conductor, and I saw long sparks burst from it. Crushed and without strength, I crawled to the panel, opened it and descended to the saloon. The storm was then at its height. It was impossible to stand upright in the interior of the Nautilus. Captain Nemo came down about twelve. I heard the reservoirs filling by degrees, and the Nautilus sank below the waves. Through the open windows in the saloon I saw large fish terrified, passing like phantoms in the water. Some were struck before my eyes. The Nautilus was still descending. I thought that at about eight fathoms deep we should find a calm. But no, the upper beds were too violently agitated for that. We had to seek repose at more than twenty-five fathoms in the bowels of the deep. But there, what quiet, what silence, what peace. Who could have told that such a hurricane had been let loose on the surface of that ocean? Chapter 20 from latitude 47 degrees 24 to longitude 17 degrees 28. In consequence of the storm, we had been thrown eastwards once more. All hope of escape on the shores of New York or St. Lawrence had faded away, and poor Ned, in despair, had isolated himself like Captain Nemo. Conseil and I, however, never left each other. I said that the Nautilus had gone aside to the east. I should have said, to be more exact, the northeast. 
For some days it wandered first on the surface and then beneath it, amid those fogs so dreaded by sailors. What accidents are due to these thick fogs? What shocks upon these reefs when the wind drowns the breaking of the waves? What collisions between vessels, in spite of their warning lights, whistles and alarm bells? And the bottoms of these seas look like a field of battle, where still lie all the conquered of the ocean, some old and already encrusted, others fresh and reflecting from their iron bands and copper plates the brilliancy of our lantern. On the 15th of May, we were at the extreme south of the bank of Newfoundland. This bank consists of alluvia, or large heaps of organic matter, brought either from the equator by the Gulf Stream or from the North Pole by the countercurrent of cold water which skirts the American coast. There also are heaped up by those erratic blocks which are carried along by the broken ice, and close by, a vast charnel house of mollusks which perish here by millions. The depth of the sea is not so great at Newfoundland, not more than some hundreds of fathoms, but towards the south is a depression of 1,500 fathoms. There the Gulf Stream widens. It loses some of its speed and some of its temperature, but it becomes a sea. It was on the 17th of May, about 500 miles from Heart's Content, at a depth of more than 1,400 fathoms, that I saw the electric cable lying on the bottom. Conseil, to whom I had not mentioned it, thought at first that it was a gigantic sea serpent, but I undeceived the worthy fellow, and by way of consolation related several particulars in the laying of this cable. The first one was laid in the years 1857 and 1858, but after transmitting about 400 telegrams, would not act any longer. In 1863, the engineers constructed another one, measuring 2,000 miles in length and weighing 4,500 tonnes, which was embarked on the Great Eastern. This attempt also failed. On the 25th of May, the Nautilus, being at a depth of more than 1,918 fathoms, was on the precise point where the rupture occurred which ruined the enterprise. It was within 638 miles of the coast of Ireland, and at half-past two in the afternoon, they discovered that communications with Europe had ceased. The electricians on board resolved to cut the cable before fishing it up, and at eleven o'clock at night, they had recovered the damaged part. They made another point and spliced it, and it was once more submerged, but some days after it broke again, and in the depths of the ocean could not be recaptured. The Americans, however, were not discouraged. Cyrus Fields, the bold promoter of the enterprise, as he had sunk all his small fortune, set a new subscription on foot, which was at once answered, and another cable was constructed on better principles. The bundles of conducting wires were each enveloped in gutta-percha and protected by a wadding of hemp contained in a metallic covering. The Great Eastern sailed on the 13th of July, 1866. The operation worked well, but one incident occurred. Several times in unrolling the cable, they observed that nails had recently been forced into it, evidently with the motive of destroying it. Captain Anderson, the officers and engineers consulted together, and had it posted up that if the offender was surprised on board, he would be thrown without further trial into the sea. From that time, the criminal attempt was never repeated. On the 23rd of July, the Great Eastern was not more than 500 miles from Newfoundland, when they telegraphed from Ireland the news of the armistice conducted between Prussia and Austria after Sadoa. On the 27th, in the midst of heavy fogs, they reached the port of Heart's Content. The enterprise was successfully terminated, and for its first dispatch, 
Young America addressed old Europe in these words of wisdom, so rarely understood. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. I did not expect to find the electric cable in its primitive state, such as it was on leaving the manufactory. The long serpent, covered with the remains of shells, was encrusted with a strong coating which served as a protection against all boring mollusks. It lay quietly sheltered from the motions of the sea, and under a favourable pressure for the transmission of the electric spark which passes from Europe to America in 0.32 of a second. Doubtless this cable will last for a great length of time, for they find that the gutter percha covering is improved by the seawater. Besides, on this level, so well chosen, the cable is never so deeply submerged as to cause it to break. The Nautilus followed it to the lowest depth, which was more than 2,212 fathoms, and there it lay without any anchorage. And then we reached the spot where the accident had taken place in 1863. The bottom of the ocean then formed a valley about a hundred miles broad, in which Mont Blanc might have been placed without its summit appearing above the waves. This valley is closed at the east by a perpendicular wall more than 2,000 yards high. We arrived there on the 28th of May, and the Nautilus was then not more than 120 miles from Ireland. Was Captain Nemo going to land on the British Isles? No. To my great surprise, he made for the south, once more coming back towards European seas. In rounding the Emerald Isle for one instant, I caught sight of Cape Clear and the light which guides the thousands of vessels leaving Glasgow or Liverpool. An important question then arose in my mind. Did the Nautilus dare entangle itself in the Manche? Ned Land, who had reappeared since we had been nearing land, did not cease to question me. How could I answer? Captain Nemo remained invisible. After having shown the Canadian a glimpse of the American shores, was he going to show me the coast of France? But the Nautilus was still going southwards. On the 30th of May, it passed in sight of Land's End, between the extreme point of England and the Scilly Isles, which were left to starboard. If we wished to enter the Moche, he must go straight to the east. He did not do so. During the whole of the 31st of May, the Nautilus described a series of circles in the water which greatly interested me. It seemed to be seeking a spot it had some trouble in finding. At noon, Captain Nemo himself came to work the ship's log. He spoke no word to me, but seemed gloomier than ever. What could sadden him thus? Was it his proximity to European shores? Had he some recollections of his abandoned country? If not, what did he feel? Remorse or regret? For a long while this thought haunted my mind, and I had a kind of presentiment that before long chance would betray the captain's secrets. The next day, the 1st of June, the Nautilus continued the same process. It was evidently seeking some particular spot in the ocean. Captain Nemo took the sun's altitude as he had done the day before. The sea was beautiful, the sky clear. About eight miles to the east, a large steam vessel could be discerned on the horizon. No flag fluttered from its mast, and I could not discover its nationality. Some minutes before the sun passed the meridian, Captain Nemo took his sextant and watched with great attention. The perfect rest of the water greatly helped the operation. The Nautilus was motionless. It neither rolled nor pitched. I was on the platform when the altitude was taken, and the captain pronounced these words. It is here. He turned and went below. Had he seen the vessel which was changing its course and seemed to be nearing us? I could not tell. 
I returned to the saloon, the panels closed. I heard the hissing of the water in the reservoirs. The Nautilus began to sink following a vertical line, for its screw communicated no motion to it. Some minutes later, it stopped at a depth of more than 420 fathoms, resting on the ground. The luminous ceiling was darkened, then the panels were opened, and through the glass I saw the sea, brilliantly illuminated by the rays of our lantern for at least half a mile around us. I looked to the port side and saw nothing but an immensity of quiet waters, but to starboard, on the bottom, appeared a large protuberance, which at once attracted my attention. One would have thought it a ruin, buried under a coating of white shells, much resembling a covering of snow. Upon examining the mass attentively, I could recognise the ever-thickening form of a vessel bare of its masts, which must have sunk. It certainly belongs to past times. This wreck, to be thus encrusted with the lime of the water, must already be able to count many years past at the bottom of the ocean. What was this vessel? Why did the Nautilus visit its tomb? Could it have been aught but a shipwreck which had drawn it under the water? I knew not what to think, when near me in a slow voice I heard Captain Nemo say, At one time, this ship was called the Marseillaise. It carried 74 guns and was launched in 1762. In 1778, the 13th of August, commanded by La Poipe Vertrieur, it fought boldly against the Preston. In 1779, on the 4th of July, it was at the taking of Grenada with the squadron of Admiral Estang. In 1781, on the 5th of September, it took part in the Battle of Comte de Grasse in Chesapeake Bay. In 1794, the French Republic changed its name. On the 16th of April in the same year, it joined the squadron of Villeray Joyeuse at Brest, being entrusted with the escort of a cargo of corn coming from America, under the command of Admiral Van Stabel. On the 11th and 12th Parel of the second year, this squadron fell in with an English vessel. Sir, today is the 13th Parel. On the 1st of June, 1868, it is now 74 years ago, day for day, on this very spot, in latitude 47 degrees 24, longitude 17 degrees 28, that this vessel, after fighting heroically, losing its three masts with the water in its hold and the third of its crew disabled, preferred sinking with its 356 sailors to surrendering, and nailing its colours to the poop, disappeared under the waves to the cry of, Long live the Republic. The Avenger, I exclaimed. Yes, sir, the Avenger. A good name, muttered Captain Nemo, crossing his arms. Chapter 21. A Hecatomb. The way of describing this unlooked-for scene, the history of the Patriot ship told at first so coldly, and the emotion with which this strange man pronounced the last words, the name of the Avenger, the significance of which could not escape me, all impressed itself deeply on my mind. My eyes did not leave the captain, who, with his hands stretched out to sea, was watching with a glowing eye the glorious wreck. Perhaps I was never to know who he was, from whence he came, or where he was going to, but I saw the man move, and apart from the savant. It was no common misanthropy which had shut Captain Nemo and his companions within the Nautilus, but a hatred, either monstrous or sublime, which time could never weaken. Did this hatred still seek for vengeance? 
The future would soon teach me that. But the Nautilus was rising slowly to the surface of the sea, and the form of the Avenger disappeared by degrees from my sight. Soon a slight rolling told me that we were in open air. At that moment a dull boom was heard. I looked at the captain. He did not move. Captain, said I. He did not answer. I left him and mounted the platform. Conseil and the Canadian were already there. Where did that sound come from? I asked. It was a gunshot, replied Ned Land. I looked in the direction of the vessel I had already seen. It was nearing the Nautilus, and we could see that it was putting on steam. It was within six miles of us. What is that ship, Ned? By its rigging and the height of its lower masts, said the Canadian, I bet she is a ship of war. May it reach us, and if necessary, sink this cursed Nautilus. Friend Ned, replied Conseil, what harm can it do to the Nautilus? Can it attack beneath the waves? Can its cannonade strike us at the bottom of the sea? Tell me, Ned, said I, can you recognise what country she belongs to? The Canadian knitted his eyebrows, dropped his eyelids and screwed up the corners of his eyes, and for a few moments fixed a piercing look upon the vessel. No, sir, he replied, I cannot tell what nation she belongs to, for she shows no colours. But I can declare she is a man of war, for a long pennant flutters from her main mast. For a quarter of an hour we watched the ship which was steaming towards us. I could not, however, believe that she could see the Nautilus from that distance, and still less that she could know what this submarine engine was. Soon the Canadian informed me that she was a large, armoured, two-decker ram. A thick black smoke was pouring from her two funnels. Her closely furled sails were stopped to her yards. She hoisted no flag at her mizzen peak. The distance prevented us from distinguishing the colours of her pennant, which floated like a thin ribbon. She advanced rapidly. If Captain Nemo allowed her to approach, there was a chance of salvation for us. Sir, said Nedland, if that vessel passes within a mile of us, I shall throw myself into the sea, and I should advise you to do the same. I did not reply to the Canadian suggestion, but continued watching the ship. Whether English, French, American or Russian, she would be sure to take us in if we could only reach her. Presently a white smoke burst from the forepart of the vessel. Some seconds after, the water, agitated by the fall of a heavy body, splashed the stern of the Nautilus, and shortly afterwards a loud explosion struck my ear. "'What? They are firing at us!' I exclaimed. "'So please you, sir,' said Ned. "'They have recognised the unicorn, and they are firing at us.' "'But,' I exclaimed, "'surely they can see that there are men in the case.' "'It is perhaps because of that,' replied Ned Land, looking at me. "'A whole flood of light burst upon my mind. "'Doubtless they knew now how to believe the stories of the pretended monster. "'No doubt, on board the Abraham Lincoln, when the Canadian struck it with the harpoon, "'Captain Farragut had recognised in the supposed narwhal a submarine vessel "'more dangerous than a supernatural cetacean. "'Yes, it must have been so, and on every sea they were now seeking this engine of destruction.' Terrible indeed, if, as we supposed, Captain Nemo employed the Nautilus in works of vengeance. On the night when we were imprisoned in that cell in the midst of the Indian Ocean, had he not attacked some vessel? The man buried in the Coral Cemetery, had he not been a victim to the shock caused by the Nautilus? Yes, I repeat it, it must be so. One part of the mysterious existence of Captain Nemo had been unveiled, and if his identity had not been recognised, 
At least the nations united against him were no longer hunting a chimerical creature, but a man who had vowed a deadly hatred against them. All the formidable past rose before me. Instead of meeting friends on board the approaching ship, we could only expect pitiless enemies. But the shot rattled about us. Some of them struck the sea and ricocheted, losing themselves in the distance, but none touched the Nautilus. The vessel was not more than three miles from us. In spite of the serious cannonade, Captain Nemo did not appear on the platform, but if one of the conical projectiles had struck the shell of the Nautilus, it would have been fatal. The Canadian then said, Sir, we must do all we can to get out of this dilemma. Let us signal them. They will then perhaps understand that we are honest folks. Ned Land took his handkerchief to wave in the air, but he had scarcely displayed it when he was struck down by an iron hand and fell, in spite of his great strength, upon the deck. "'Fool!' exclaimed the captain. "'Do you wish to be pierced by the spur of the Nautilus before it is hurled at this vessel?' Captain Nemo was terrible to hear. He was still more terrible to see. His face was deadly pale, with a spasm in his heart. For an instant it must have ceased to beat. His pupils were fearfully contracted— he did not speak. He roared as with his whole body thrown forward, he wrung the Canadian's shoulders. Then, leaving him and turning to the ship of war, whose shot was still raining around him, he exclaimed with a powerful voice, Ah, ship of an accursed nation, you know who I am. I do not want your colours to know you by. Look, and I will show you mine. And on the forepart of the platform, Captain Nemo unfurled a black flag, similar to the one he had placed at the South Pole. At that moment, a shot struck the shell of the Nautilus obliquely without piercing it, and rebounding near the captain, was lost in the sea. He shrugged his shoulders, and addressing me, said shortly, "'Go down, you and your companions, go down.' "'Sir,' I cried, "'are you going to attack this vessel?' "'Sir, I am going to sink it.' "'You will not do that.' "'I shall do it,' he replied coldly, "'and I advise you not to judge me, sir. "'Fate has shown you what you ought not to have seen. "'The attack has begun. Go down.' "'What is this vessel?' "'You do not know?' "'Very well. So much the better. "'Its nationality to you, at least, will be a secret. "'Go down.' "'We could but obey.' "'About fifteen of the sailors surrounded the captain, "'looking with implacable hatred at the vessel nearing them.' One could feel that the same desire of vengeance animated every soul. I went down at the moment another projectile struck the Nautilus, and I heard the captain exclaim, Strike, mad vessel! Shower your useless shot, and then you will not escape the spur of the Nautilus. But it is not here that you shall perish. I would not have your ruins mingle with those of the Avenger. I reached my room. The captain and his second had remained on the platform. The screw was set in motion, and the Nautilus, moving with speed, was soon beyond the reach of the ship's guns. But the pursuit continued, and Captain Nemo contented himself with keeping his distance. About four in the afternoon, being no longer able to contain my impatience, I went to the central staircase. The panel was open, and I ventured onto the platform. The captain was still walking up and down with an agitated step. He was looking at the ship which was five or six miles to leeward. He was going round it like a wild beast, and drawing it eastward. He allowed them to pursue, but he did not attack. Perhaps he still hesitated. I wished to mediate once more, but I had scarcely spoken when Captain Nemo imposed silence, saying, I am the law, and I am the judge. I am the oppressed, and there... 
is the oppressor. Through him I have lost all that I loved, cherished and venerated. Country, wife, children, father and mother, I saw all perish. All that I hate is there. Say no more. I cast a last look at the man of war, which was putting on steam, and rejoined Ned and Conseil. We will fly, I exclaimed. Good, said Ned. What is this vessel? I do not know, but whatever it is, it will be sunk before night. In any case, it is better to perish with it than be made accomplices in a retaliation the justice of which we cannot judge. That is my opinion too, said Ned Land coolly. Let us wait for tonight. Night arrived. Deep silence reigned on board. The compass showed that the Nautilus had not altered its course. It was on the surface, rolling slightly. My companions and I resolved to fly when the vessel should be near enough either to hear us or to see us, for the moon, which would be full in two or three days, shone brightly. Once on board the ship, if we could not prevent the blow which threatened it, we could, at least we would, do all that circumstances would allow. Several times I thought the Nautilus was preparing for attack, but Captain Nemo contented himself with allowing his adversary to approach, and then fled once more before it. Part of the night passed without any incident. We watched the opportunity for action. We spoke little, for we were too much moved. Ned Land would have thrown himself into the sea, but I forced him to wait. According to my idea, the Nautilus would attack the ship at her waterline, and then it would not only be possible, but easy to fly. At three in the morning, full of uneasiness, I mounted the platform. Captain Nemo had not left it. He was standing at the forepart near his flag, which a slight breeze displayed above his head. He did not take his eyes from the vessel. The intensity of his look seemed to attract and fascinate and draw it onward more surely than if he had been towing it. The moon was then passing the meridian. Jupiter was rising in the east. Amid this peaceful scene of nature, sky and ocean rivalled each other in tranquillity, the sea offering to the orbs of night the finest mirror they could ever have in which to reflect their image. As I thought of the deep calm of these elements, compared with all those passions brooding imperceptibly within the Nautilus, I shuddered. The vessel was within two miles of us. It was ever nearing that phosphorescent light which showed the presence of the Nautilus. I could see its green and red lights and its white lantern hanging from the large foremast. An indistinct vibration quivered through its rigging, showing that the furnaces were heated to the uttermost. Sheaves of sparks and red ashes flew from the funnels, shining in the atmosphere like stars. I remained thus until six in the morning, without Captain Nemo noticing me. The ship stood about a mile and a half from us, and with the first dawn of day, the firing began afresh. The moment could not be far off when, the Nautilus attacking its adversary, my companions and myself should forever leave this man. I was preparing to go down to remind them when the second mounted the platform, accompanied by several sailors. Captain Nemo either did not or would not see them. Some steps were taken which might be called the signal for action. They were very simple. The iron balustrade around the platform was lowered, and the lantern and pilot cages were pushed within the shell until they were flush with the deck. The long surface of the steel cigar no longer offered a single point to check its manoeuvres. I returned to the saloon. The Nautilus still floated. Some streaks of light were filtering through the liquid beds. With the undulations of the waves, the windows were brightened by the red streaks of the rising sun, and this dreadful day of the 2nd of June had dawned. At five o'clock, the log showed that the speed of the Nautilus was slackening, and I knew that it was allowing them to draw nearer. 
Besides, the reports were heard more distinctly, and the projectiles, labouring through the ambient water, were extinguished with a strange hissing noise. "'My friends,' said I, "'the moment is come. One grasp of the hand, and may God protect us.' Ned Land was resolute, Conseil calm, myself so nervous that I knew not how to contain myself. We all passed into the library, but the moment I pushed the door opening onto the central staircase, I heard the upper panel close sharply. The Canadian rushed onto the stairs, but I stopped him. A well-known hissing noise told me that the water was running into the reservoirs, and in a few minutes the Nautilus was some yards beneath the surface of the waves. I understood the manoeuvre. It was too late to act. The Nautilus did not wish to strike at the impenetrable cuirass, but below the waterline where the metallic covering no longer protected it. We were again imprisoned, unwilling witnesses of the dreadful drama that was preparing. We had scarcely time to reflect. Taking refuge in my room, we looked at each other without speaking. A deep stupor had taken hold of my mind. Thought seemed to stand still. I was in that painful state of expectation preceding a dreadful report. I waited, I listened, every sense was merged in that of hearing. The speed of the Nautilus was accelerating, it was preparing to rush, the whole ship trembled. Suddenly, I screamed. I felt the shock, but comparatively light. I felt the penetrating power of the steel spur. I heard rattlings and scrapings. But the Nautilus, carried along by its propelling power, passed through the mass of the vessel like a needle through sailcloth. I could stand it no longer. Mad, out of my mind, I rushed from my room into the saloon. Captain Nemo was there, mute, gloomy, implacable. He was looking through the port panel. A large mass cast a shadow on the water, and, that it might lose nothing of her agony, the Nautilus was going down into the abyss with her. Ten yards from me, I saw the open shell through which the water was rushing with the noise of thunder, then the double line of guns and the netting. The bridge was covered with black, agitated shadows. The water was rising. The poor creatures were crowding the ratlines, clinging to the masts, struggling under the water. It was a human ant heap overtaken by the sea. Paralysed, stiffened with anguish, my hair standing on end, with eyes wide open, panting, without breath and without voice, I too was watching. An irresistible attraction glued me to the glass. Suddenly an explosion took place. The compressed air blew up her decks as if the magazines had caught fire. Then the unfortunate vessel sank more rapidly. Her topmast, laden with victims, now appeared, then her spars, bending under the weight of men, and last of all, the top of her main mast. Then the dark mass disappeared, and with it, the dead crew, drawn down by the strong eddy. I turned to Captain Nemo. That terrible avenger, a perfect archangel of hatred, was still looking. When all was over, he turned to his room, opened the door, and entered. I followed him with my eyes. On the end wall, beneath his heroes, I saw the portrait of a woman, still young, and two little children. Captain Nemo looked at them for some moments, stretched his arms towards them, and, kneeling down, burst into deep sobs. Chapter 22 The Last Words of Captain Nemo the panels had closed on this dreadful vision, but light had not returned to the saloon. All was silence and darkness within the Nautilus. At wonderful speed, a hundred feet beneath the water, it was leaving this desolate spot. 
Whither was it going? To the north or south? Where was the man flying to after such dreadful retaliation? I had returned to my room where Ned and Conseil had remained silent enough. I felt an insurmountable horror for Captain Nemo. Whatever he had suffered at the hands of these men, he had no right to punish thus. He had made me, if not an accomplice, at least a witness of his vengeance. At eleven, the electric light reappeared. I passed into the saloon. It was deserted. I consulted the different instruments. The Nautilus was flying northwards at the rate of twenty-five miles an hour, now on the surface and now thirty feet below it. On taking the bearings by the chart, I saw that we were passing the mouth of the Mosh, and that our course was hurrying us towards the northern seas at a frightful speed. That night we had crossed two hundred leagues of the Atlantic. The shadows fell, and the sea was covered with darkness until the rising of the moon. I went to my room, but I could not sleep. I was troubled with dreadful nightmares. The horrible scene of destruction was continually before my eyes. From that day, who could tell into what part of the North Atlantic Basin the Nautilus would take us? Still, with unaccountable speed, still in the midst of these northern fogs, would it touch at Spitsbergen or on the shores of Nova Zembla? Should we explore those unknown seas, the White Sea, the Sea of Kara, the Gulf of Obi, the archipelago of Lirov and the unknown coast of Asia? I could not say. I could no longer judge of the time that was passing. The clocks had been stopped on board. It seemed, as in polar countries, that night and day no longer followed their regular course. I felt myself being drawn into that strange region where the founded imagination of Edgar Poe roamed at will. Like the fabulous Gordon Pym, at every moment I expected to see that veiled human figure, of larger proportions than those of any inhabitant of the earth, thrown across the cataract which defends the approach to the pole. I estimated, though perhaps I may have been mistaken, I estimated this adventurous course of the Nautilus to have lasted fifteen or twenty days, and I know not how much longer it might have lasted had it not been for the catastrophe which ended this voyage. Of Captain Nemo I saw nothing whatever now, nor of his second. Not a man of the crew was visible for an instant. The Nautilus was almost incessantly under water. When we came to the surface to renew the air, the panels opened and shut mechanically. There were no more marks on the planisphere. I knew not where we were. And the Canadian, too, his strength and patience at an end, appeared no more. Conseil could not draw a word from him, and fearing that, in a dreadful fit of madness, he might kill himself, watched him with constant devotion. One morning, what date it was I could not say, I had fallen into a heavy sleep towards the early hours, a sleep both painful and unhealthy, when I suddenly awoke. Ned Land was leaning over me, saying in a low voice, We are going to fly. I sat up. When shall we go? I asked. Tonight. All inspection on board the Nautilus seems to have ceased. All appear to be stupefied. You will be ready, sir? Yes. Where are we? In sight of land. I took the reckoning this morning in the fog, twenty miles to the east. What country is it? I do not know. But whatever it is, we will take refuge there. Yes, Ned. Yes, we will fly tonight, even if the sea should swallow us up. The sea is bad, the wind violent, but twenty miles in that light boat of the Nautilus does not frighten me. Unknown to the crew, I have been able to procure food and some bottles of water. I will follow you. But, continued the Canadian, if I am surprised, I will defend myself. I will force them to kill me. We will die together, friend Ned. 
I had made up my mind to all. The Canadian left me. I reached the platform on which I could with difficulty support myself against the shock of the waves. The sky was threatening, but as land was in those thick brown shadows, we must fly. I returned to the saloon, fearing and yet hoping to see Captain Nemo, wishing and yet not wishing to see him. What could I have said to him? Could I hide the involuntary horror with which he inspired me? No, it was better that I should not meet him face to face, better to forget him, and yet... How long seemed that day, the last that I should pass in the Nautilus? I remained alone. Ned Land and Conseil avoided speaking for fear of betraying themselves. At six I dined, but I was not hungry. I forced myself to eat in spite of my disgust, that I might not weaken myself. At half-past six, Ned Land came to my room, saying, "'We shall not see each other again before our departure. At ten, the moon will not be risen. We will profit by the darkness. Come to the boat. Conseil and I will wait for you.' The Canadian went out without giving me time to answer. Wishing to verify the course of the Nautilus, I went to the saloon. We were running north-northeast at frightful speed and more than fifty yards deep, I cast a last look on these wonders of nature, on the riches of art heaped up in this museum, upon the unrivalled collection destined to perish at the bottom of the sea with him who had formed it. I wished to fix an indelible impression of it in my mind. I remained an hour thus, bathed in the light of that luminous ceiling, and passing in review those treasures shining under their glasses. Then I returned to my room. I dressed myself in strong sea clothing. I collected my notes, placing them carefully about me. My heart beat loudly. I could not check its pulsations. Certainly my trouble and agitation would have betrayed me to Captain Nemo's eyes. What was he doing at this moment? I listened at the door of his room. I heard steps. Captain Nemo was there. He had not gone to rest. At every moment I expected to see him appear and ask me why I wished to fly. I was constantly on the alert. My imagination magnified everything. The impression became at last so poignant that I asked myself if it would not be better to go to the captain's room to see him face to face and brave him with look and gesture. It was the inspiration of a madman. Fortunately, I resisted the desire and stretched myself on my bed to quiet my bodily agitation. My nerves were somewhat calmer, but in my excited brain I saw over again all my existence on board the Nautilus, every incident, either happy or unfortunate, which had happened since my disappearance from the Abraham Lincoln. The submarine hunt, the Torres Straits, the savages of Papua, the running ashore, the coral cemetery, the passage of Suez, the island of Santorin, the Cretan diver, Vigo Bay. Atlantis, the iceberg, the South Pole, the imprisonment in the ice, the fight among the pulps, the storm in the Gulf Stream, the Avenger, and the horrible scene of the vessel sunk with all her crew. All these events passed before my eyes like scenes in a drama. Then Captain Nemo seemed to grow enormously, his features to assume superhuman proportions. He was no longer my equal, but a man of the waters, a genie of the sea. It was then half-past nine. I held my head between my hands to keep it from bursting. I closed my eyes. I would not think any longer. There was another half-hour to wait, another half-hour of nightmare, which might drive me mad. At that moment, I heard the distant strains of the organ, a sad harmony to an undefinable chant, the wail of a soul longing to break these earthly bonds. I listened with every sense, scarcely breathing, plunged like Captain Nemo in that musical ecstasy which was drawing him in spirit to the end of life. 
Then a sudden thought terrified me. Captain Nemo had left his room. He was in the saloon, which I must cross to fly. There I should meet him for the last time. He would see me, perhaps speak to me. A gesture of his might destroy me, a single word chain me on board. But ten was about to strike. The moment had come for me to leave my room and join my companions. I must not hesitate, even if Captain Nemo himself should rise before me. I opened my door carefully, and even then, as it turned on its hinges, it seemed to me to make a dreadful noise. Perhaps it only existed in my own imagination. I crept along the dark stairs of the Nautilus, stopping at each step to check the beating of my heart. I reached the door of the saloon and opened it gently. It was plunged in profound darkness. The strains of the organ sounded faintly. Captain Nemo was there. He did not see me. In the full light, I do not think he would have noticed me. So entirely was he absorbed in the ecstasy. I crept along the carpet, avoiding the slightest sound which might betray my presence. I was at least five minutes reaching the door at the opposite side, opening into the library. I was going to open it when a sigh from Captain Nemo nailed me to the spot. I knew that he was rising. I could even see him, for the light from the library came through to the saloon. He came towards me silently with his arms crossed, gliding like a spectre rather than walking. His breast was swelling with sobs, and I heard him murmur these words, the last which ever struck my ear. Almighty God, enough, enough. Was it a confession of remorse which thus escaped from this man's conscience? In desperation, I rushed through the library, mounted the central staircase, and following the upper flight reached the boat. I crept through the opening which had already admitted my two companions. "'Let us go! Let us go!' I exclaimed. "'Directly!' replied the Canadian. The orifice of the plates of the Nautilus was first closed and fastened down by means of a false key with which Ned Land had provided himself. The opening in the boat was also closed. The Canadian began to loosen the bolts which still held us to the submarine boat. Suddenly, a noise was heard. Voices were answering each other loudly. What was the matter? Had they discovered our flight? I felt Ned Land slipping a dagger into my hand. Yes, I murmured. We know how to die. The Canadian had stopped his work, but one word many times repeated, a dreadful word, revealed the cause of the agitation spreading on board the Nautilus. It was not we the crew were looking after. The maelstrom! The maelstrom! Could a more dreadful word in a more dreadful situation have sounded in our ears? We were then upon the dangerous coast of Norway. Was the Nautilus being drawn into this gulf at the moment our boat was going to leave its sides? We knew that at the tide the pent-up waters between the islands of Faroe and Lofoden rush with irresistible violence, forming a whirlpool from which no vessel ever escapes. From every point of the horizon, enormous waves were meeting, forming a gulf justly called the navel of the ocean, whose power of attraction extends to a distance of twelve miles. There, not only vessels, but whales are sacrificed, as well as white bears from the northern regions. It was thither that the Nautilus, voluntarily or involuntarily, had been run by the captain. It was describing a spiral, the circumference of which was lessening by degrees, and the boat, which was still fastened to its side, was carried along with giddy speed. I felt that sickly giddiness which arises from long-continued whirling round. We were in dread. Our horror was at its height. Circulation had stopped. All nervous influence was annihilated, and we were covered with cold sweat, like a sweat of agony. 
And what noise around our frail bark? What roarings repeated by the echo miles away? What an uproar was that of the waters broken on the sharp rocks at the bottom, where the hardest bodies are crushed and trees worn away, with all the fur rubbed off, according to the Norwegian phrase? What a situation to be in! We rocked frightfully. The Nautilus defended itself like a human being. Its steel muscles cracked. Sometimes it seemed to stand upright, and we with it. We must hold on, said Ned, and look after the bolts. We may still be saved if we stick to the Nautilus. He had not finished the words when we heard a crashing noise. The bolts gave way, and the boat, torn from its groove, was hurled like a stone from a sling into the midst of the whirlpool. My head struck on a piece of iron, and with the violent shock... I lost all consciousness. Chapter 23 Conclusion Thus ends the voyage under the seas. What passed during that night, how the boat escaped from the eddies of the maelstrom, how Ned Land, Conseil and myself ever came out of the gulf, I cannot tell. But when I returned to consciousness, I was lying in a fisherman's hut on the Lofoden Isles. My two companions, safe and sound, were near me, holding my hands. We embraced each other heartily. At that moment, we could not think of returning to France. The means of communication between the north of Norway and the south are rare, and I am therefore obliged to wait for that steamboat running monthly from Cape North. And among the worthy people who have so kindly received us, I revise my record of these adventures once more. Not a fact has been omitted, not a detail exaggerated. It is a faithful narrative of this incredible expedition in an element inaccessible to man, but to which progress will one day open a road. Shall I be believed? I do not know. And it matters little, after all. What I now affirm is that I have a right to speak of these seas, under which, in less than ten months, I have crossed twenty thousand leagues in that submarine tour of the world which has revealed so many wonders. But what has become of the Nautilus? Did it resist the pressure of the maelstrom? Does Captain Nemo still live? Does he still follow under the ocean those frightful retaliations? Or did he stop after the last hecatomb? Will the waves one day carry to him this manuscript containing the history of his life? Shall I ever know the name of this man? Will the missing vessel tell us by its nationality that of Captain Nemo? I hope so, and I also hope that his powerful vessel has conquered the sea at its most terrible gulf, and that the Nautilus has survived where so many other vessels have been lost. If it be so, if Captain Nemo still inhabits the ocean, his adopted country, may hatred be appeased in that savage heart. May the contemplation of so many wonders extinguish forever the spirit of vengeance. May the judge disappear, and the philosopher continue the peaceful exploration of the sea. If his destiny be strange, it is also sublime. Have I not understood it myself? Have I not lived ten months of this unnatural life? And to the question asked by Ecclesiastes three thousand years ago, that which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out? Two men alone of all now living have the right to give an answer. Captain Nemo and myself. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. 
If you did, then please consider supporting The Well-Told Tale on Patreon at patreon.com slash thewelltoldtale. There's a link in the description. I'll be back next time with another classic story. I hope you can join me.